get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Hi, I'm Dan for Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers, here to share the easiest way to buy tires. Come to Dobbs. With the best tire brands and the biggest inventory, you'll get your tires the same day at the lowest price, guaranteed. Next time you need tires, get into Dobbs. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. today was supposed to go this was supposed to open up today Alex with you and me talking about how the Cardinals were finally able to do it they beat Max Scherzer in his last 17 starts that he has made in the regular season his team has won 17 consecutive starts and the Cardinals nearly did it they nearly slayed the dragon last night they got to the bullpen they executed their game plan offensively yeah I know they only scored two runs can Scherzer with the way that Michaelis was pitching last night, it was damn near enough. They were down to their final out. Nolan Arenado making the play we've seen him make a million different times. He's made it twice in the last two weeks. And he overthrows it. He overcooks it a little bit. Goldie misjudges the timing on his jump. It ends up extending the game. And this Mets team's a little different. In the past, I don't know that they take advantage of that. This time around... Whoo, buddy. They opened the door, and that's how it ended up going. Then you have the play at first with Giovanni Gallegos not covering. The Cardinals end up going down. TJ McFarland comes into the game. He serves up a ding dong Johnson, and bada boom, bada bang, game over. Mets win 5 2. Cardinals are stunned. Nobody can believe it. And today, instead of talking about how the Cardinals slayed the dragon, we've got to talk about the defeat that took place last night at Bush Stadium. Just answer me one question, BK. And T-Bone, you'll be able to be my uh, my jury on this because you were right next to him in the press box. Oh, God. Did you or did you not in the top of the ninth when Tyler O'Neill scored those two runs, look to Tanner and say, oh, oh they're going to do it. They're going to do it. They're going to beat the Mets. It's worse. No. It's worse. I can't remember no. exactly what happened, but I did witness a BK- BKO live in person. And you I know exactly say, when it happened. It was on the Arenado play. Well, no. Remind me, though, because was it on the chopper? BK goes, oh, he's going to make this play. And no, then he like, sails said, it over his I, head. I literally said, as Arenado is drifting to his right, a play that we've seen him oh, make. Oh, he goes, what a play. <laughs> I said, what a play. Can't believe Arenado Jesus. made it. You it made a BKO. The game was over, man. <laughs> Nolan you Arenado made... was making a play that we've seen him make multiple times. That literally, maybe five third basemen in baseball can make that play. And he you does pulled, it routinely. You pulled a BKO mid-play. 
It was I don't impressive. think anybody can do that. I did. That's impressive, BK. I had put my computer away because we were at the game last night. We oh, went out to Bush Stadium. We were covering it for the station. There and it was. I put my computer away. I look over to Tanner as Nolan Arenado is drifting to his right, getting ready to make his throw. He's gearing. What a play. Game over. That's it. it that's it. And obviously, we know what happened from there. So, yeah. I, yeah. For what it's worth, I did say also, and Gallegos was, his pitching was not the problem. His pitching was fine. The, the Mets got to him, and they made a couple of defensive lapses. That's not something you expect from the Cardinals. They'll overcome this. They'll be fine. But I said I would have gone to Helsley in that spot. Yeah, th- oh, this whole time. He was riding a roller coaster in the press box. I would have gone <laughs> to Helsley. It's not your job, Gall- Brandon. And then Gallegos gets the first two guys out, looks awesome. Brandon's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I, you know what, Gallegos? Me Brandon. I That's like how it. mad he was. Yeah, he's trying to take shots at my guy, Gallegos. I love my boy, Look, Gio. In all honesty, they I, even if they would have won that game, I don't know if I would have said they slayed the Dragon because Max Scherzer, was, he was on it last night. What did he have? He had 10 strikeouts? Yeah, 10 strikeouts and, through and seven innings. At I, I one point, five, he had thrown 17 consecutive strikes, I believe it was. Oh, my God. Yeah. He struck out five guys on three pitches. Like, yep. that, you, you didn't slay the dragon there. But I will say, like, if they would have won that game, that was the prototypical playoff style of baseball game where you battle it out, two aces go head-to-head. Like, it looked like Roy Halladay against Chris Carpenter for how those two played. But then the Cardinals got into the bullpen. And they took advantage of a bullpen. That is playoff ho- uh, playoff hockey, playoff baseball. And I was impressed by the fact that they got all the way up to that. But then one error from Nolan Arenado, which is an anomaly. Like, those happen once in a blue moon. And then the Giovanni Gallegos. That was the more frustrating part for me because the Cardinals spend one whole day working on that of a pitcher throwing a pitch and picking up the play and going to first base. Yeah, and they PSD. missed that play. They do it every day. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's that's a something play. you have to make that play. And let's hear from Ali Marmol, who after the game didn't mince his words. Uh, first, we'll get to the play that Nolan Arenado make or didn't make. Really, uh, we'll do this in chronological order. Ali on Arenado's throw, the play, what he made of all of that. Yeah, it's a tough play. He's on the run, uh, overthrows. He's going to make that play more often than not. That time didn't happen. I can't be mad at it, man. I know there's people that are saying, oh, you got to set your feet in that spot. Talking about Nolan Bleep and Arenado. Those are the guys that play third base in softball. I mean, (laughs) I I can't relate to that. I don't play baseball. You know this. (laughs) Um, That's a play he's made a hundred times. Yeah. It's a play that we've seen him make over the last two weeks for the Cardinals. He made it against the Reds. He made it against Miami. It's that exact same throw. Is it a tough play? Absolutely. Did he airmail it a little bit? Yeah. It wasn't the greatest throw. Goldie would probably tell you, hey, I I misjudged my timing on the jump as well. It's two gold glovers who are going to make a million plays for you this year. I didn't make the play in that spot. It happens. The play that can't happen, though, is what you mentioned, Alex. Giovanni Gallegos. Tanner, you mentioned this uh, pre-show today. He probably didn't realize they were playing no doubles defense. I don't know what happened or what led to it. He got a little lazy, let's be honest. And here's Ollie Marmol, again, not mincing his words after the game, talking about that play and how it just simply cannot happen. Uh, pretty simple. Um, we're going to make physical mistakes. That's a mental mistake. Can't excuse it. He knows it. We know it. He's got to cover first. Got to get it done didn't get it done in that spot and that's how you end up losing the game that that is where they lost it it's not on the tj mcfarland pitch game should have been over right there never have to get any further 
Yeah, I mean, the Mets had momentum as soon as Giovanni Gallegos missed that play. I mean, and once you have momentum, people don't believe in it, but momentum's a real thing. You knew the Mets were going to storm their way back and take over. The, the part that you could tell the frustration set in was Paul Goldschmidt. Like, rewatch that play. Yeah. Paul Goldschmidt is the most vanilla type of player that you can ask for. Like, he doesn't show his emotions. He just plays the game. He, like, crumbled. He was like, that. you know those toys, BK? The giraffes where you press the button and they, like, crumbled all their limbs fell down? Is That's that a, what Paul Goldschmidt. Is that a real What's toy? That? Is that a real it's toy? It's a real toy. Look it up, I promise you. Paul Goldschmidt did that. And that right there was the moment for me where it's like, okay, this is trending in the wrong direction for the Cardinals. And I, I love the way Ali Marmol laid it out, though. Because, like, that was the Craig Berube prototypical post-game comment. That was a mental mistake, and those can't happen. And you wash it, you walk away from it, and you go to the next game. That's the only thing you can do. Yeah, mental mistake, and it, it just can't happen in that scenario. But also give the Mets credit. I mentioned this to BK last night, I think, when we were coming back from the game. You know, a lot of teams, you're just going to have runners at first and third in that scenario, and it's a 2-2 game. And then you have a chance to get out of it and get to the 10th inning or head to the bottom of the ninth tide. The Mets were going full throttle. They they. It, they did what the Cardinals do, and it's fundamental baseball, and it was a smart baseball play. I think yeah. it was Jeff McNeil at second base. He probably, in theory, should just be stopping at third base. They see the chaos at first. Gallegos is late. What do the Mets do? They send McNeil home on that play, and then they take the lead, and then, of course, you go to McFarland, and then it just gets even bigger. Well, that was just a, a mental mistake from the Cardinals, a play that you just don't want to see happen because of what we're talking about, where you do it day in, day out. The Mets just played the fundamentally better game in terms of, hey, they knew what they were doing. Credit to them from Jeff McNeil from going from second to home on a chopper to first that Paul Goldschmidt makes an incredible play on. Because if you don't make that play where he goes home on that, who's to say that Geo doesn't get out of that inning? Or they don't turn to McFarlane, and then you try and get out of it and try and go to the bottom of the ninth tide. It's one of those games where you're mad that they lost, but I'm not mad because of anything specifically that would portend issues for the Cardinals long-term. I don't think Nolan Arnold is going to make a bunch of bad defensive plays this year. I don't think Gio's ever going to make that same mistake again. Like that, that is a lesson learned for Giovanni Gallegos. It's not something that you've seen him do consistently. We're not talking about Carlos Martinez here, who sometimes just gets in his own own head and he's not doing what you're expecting him to do. Giovanni Gallegos has been an excellent pitcher for the Cardinals, not just for this year, but for the entirety of his career. So I'm not worried about that long term, but it's a game that you wish you had. You had the Mets on the ropes in a game that Max Scherzer started. You should have won that one. And it sucks that you didn't get it. And eventually we're going to look back potentially as we get further on into the year. Maybe it's August, September, and you're looking at the standings and they're a game out of something, whether it be having home field advantage in the first round or uh, winning the NL Central, whatever it is. And this is a game that you're going to come to the back of your mind. And you're going to say, damn, wish we had that one. You were absolutely going to do that. But Alex, there's nothing from last night's game that I looked back at and I said to myself, hmm. That is a really concerning trend moving forward. It felt like a playoff game. It reminded me a lot of when the Blues lost to the Pittsburgh Penguins. It's like, hey, what are you going to do? Sidney Crosby went otherworldly. Max Scherzer last night was amazing against you, and you ended up losing because they took advantage of your mistakes. That stuff happens sometimes. Yeah, I came away from that game actually more pleased than I was upset. Now, offensively, they struggled, but look, Max Scherzer was on his game. That's what you're going to get against an ace. But I was more pleased by the fact that the Cardinals basically saw what Max Scherzer did, and they they mimicked it with Miles Michaelis Definitely. because Miles Michaelis was insane last night. And in a playoff game, you got to have your pitcher performing that way, and Michaelis did that. He gave his team an opportunity to get into the game and score some runs, 
and they did. They just had a couple of mental mistakes, which nine times out of ten aren't going to ha happen. But Miles Michaelis was the pleasant surprise from that game last night. Tanner gave us his T-bone three before the season on the three bold predictions for the Cardinals in 2022. One of his bold predictions was Miles Michaelis would lead the Cardinals in wins. wins. He would have more than 170 innings pitched, yep. and he would have a sub sub 3.5 ERA. Believe it or not, Alex, that's going to come true. Two of those three will come true. I, I don't think know I'm if he's going to lead I don't think he's going to. Unfortunately, Miles Michaelis is going through what Adam Wainwright went through a couple of years ago, where every time he pitched well, or no, I'm sorry, it wasn't Wainwright. It was Jack Flaherty. Every time he pitched well, the team couldn't give him the run support until he was either out of the game or they would blow the game for him. So I, I think two of those three are going to hit. It's just leading the team in wins is the one that I'm a little skeptical about. Miles Michaelis in his last three starts. Cardinals are two and one last night was the loss, of course, thrown 18 and two thirds innings. He's allowed a total of 13 base runners in those 18 and two thirds innings. He has a, he has more strikeouts than he has allowed ba uh, base runners in that stretch. He's been excellent, man. And if he is this guy, if he's back to not quite 2018 form, you don't need him to be that. It, it's unfair to expect him to be that. But if he can be what we're talking about right now, sub 35 ERA give you 160 plus innings pitched this year it completely alters the expectations for what this rotation can be that's a legitimate number two starter that suddenly means okay Wayno can be your number one Michaelis slots in as that number two Matt's is a really solid number three for you you get maybe Dakota Hudson could be a pretty good number four no Suddenly, it's really starting to come together in this rotation. And that's before you get Jack Flaherty back, who might take a while. Uh, talking to Mo yesterday, it doesn't sound like this is going to be something where he's back by early June. I'd, I would not expect Jack Flaherty back anytime in the near future. In fact, let's just put that on the back burner for now. And when he gets back, we'll be happy that he's back. But this rotation with Miles Michaelis pitching the way that he is right now, it means there's fewer question marks in that spot. Yeah, it, it really solidifies a lot of things for this Cardinals team because you know, one, where your innings are coming from. You know, two, you're not going to overuse your bullpen. And three, you know every time Miles Michaelis is on the mound, you're in games. And you couldn't say that last year for three of the five guys that were in your rotation. And right now, I think you can legitimately say that for four of the five guys in your rotation, arguably five of them if you think Dakota Hudson's going to fix whatever he's been struggling with but it, it was the one big question mark we had it was the one big question mark national analysts had coming into the season and I think it's been answered in the last couple of starts by Michaelis and Steven Matz. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. We'll talk this over with Danny Mack coming up in the 1 o'clock hour. We want to get his thoughts on last night's game and how it influences today. I think today's a really big game for the Cardinals. I'm not in any way, shape, or form concerned about them right now. I really want to see how they respond, though. I think today's a big day to be able to get a response out of them going up against what I deem to be one of the three or four best teams in the National League at a minimum in the New York Mets. You can't let that loss last night bleed into today. So we'll talk about that throughout the day today. We'll get into the Blues with Jeremy Rutherford at 1130. But coming up next, there was a new man on the roster last night, Alex. He was not your DH. You should not expect him to be your DH. What is Brendan Donovan's role? Why is he here? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. So why did the car 
Cardinals bring up Brendan Donovan? Why is he here and not Nolan Gorman with Alex Ferrario? And- baseball. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Thanks, Captain Obvious. He's playing baseball, BK. I would not expect to see him playing designated hitter, which because I said that I would expect to see him in the lineup today <laughs> as your DH. Uh, yesterday, <laughs> we were able to catch up with Ollie Marmel and John Mosellock out of Bush Stadium, Alex, prior to the game. And I asked both of them, you know, why? Why Brendan Donovan? Why now? And what does this mean for the team? Here's what Ollie Marmel had to say about Donovan filling in and where he will be playing. Yeah, I wouldn't eliminate that thought other than we are looking to continue to have Dickerson and Albert fill that DH spot. We're looking to get Nolan and Goldie a DH opportunity over the next stretch. Um, so he fits uh, the ability of playing a little first, a little third, um, and DH if necessary. Basically, both he and John Mosellock said, eh, yeah, DH, you could maybe see him there. But likely what you're going to see is as you get a couple of off days for Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt, as the Cardinals have told us they were planning to do, those guys will get opportunities at DH, probably against these right-handed pitchers that you're about to face over the next few days. And then you'll see in first base or at third base while those guys are off, you'll see Donovan getting those opportunities. So Newt Barr gets to go down. He's going to get more at-bats down in AAA. I think he's in the lineup today as the designated hitter for them. Um, So they'll keep him a little bit more fresh. They'll get Donovan some at-bats here as a first and third baseman. It brings them a little bit of flexibility, a new lefty bat. I think it makes a lot of sense, man. I think this is the type of thing that with Ali Marmol as your manager, you're incorporating all of the different departments, as they said in the offseason. This is where the rest comes in. This is... Uh, something that you didn't see a whole lot of Goldie was going to play every day at first base and you're going to see uh, Arenado every day at third base with previous managers, not a shot at, get at them, just the way that it worked. Now you're going to see those guys getting a few days off here and there. And that's, that's just the diminishing returns ideas. They think that if they can get them a day off of their feet in the field, it's going to help them as we go on further on in the season. Yeah, and it makes sense. I mean, you haven't had that opportunity yet for both of them and you've given other guys days off. You just went through the, the, uh, the, the 24-hour work period for take Dylan two. Carlson. We're, we're giving nope. you a take-two, buddy. You went through the swirling door. I don't think that's proper, but it's going to be <laughs> of the outfield of giving those guys rest. Revolving that door. Is that what we're looking for there, buddy? Yes, revolving swirling door. Swirling door. My goodness, this is not good. No, you just went through giving all the guys in the outfield the days off. You gave Paul DeYoung 48 hours off. I think the only guys that haven't had days off have been the first and third baseman and Tommy Edmond at second base. So it, it makes sense for those two guys. But I think it also puts some competition on Corey Dickerson now as the uh, designated hitter from the left side. And you also know by now that Albert Pujols won't be starting at first base anytime soon. Yeah, I think that's a big part of this. They didn't. They clearly didn't want Albert starting at first, and they, they would like to see Donovan. They trust him. They think that he can help him here. Otherwise, he's not going to be up, and he's a lefty bat, so he fits in with what you need against some of these right-handed pitchers that you're about to face. But, yeah, it also means that you're probably not going to see as much of Corey Dickerson over the next few days as you otherwise would have because you're going to have guys filtering throughout that DH spot. Uh, The next question that I think is logical to ask is, okay, if you're going to go this route, why Donovan as opposed to Nolan Gorman, who could have potentially come up? He certainly could have filled in at third base for you. Maybe he gets some time at second as well and at DH. I think that's an obvious argument to make while he's batting 316 down in AAA with a 737 slugging percentage so far. Here's what John Mosellock said when asked what the timing needs to be for Nolan Gorman to come up. So it's not so much timing as much as it is about how much are you going to actually play. And 
you know, when you look at our club, you know, one of the, the keystones of this team is our defense. And so if we're starting to have to, like, reshuffle the lineup, and it's not saying we're not willing to do it, but that's going to be the major part of the discussion because to get someone like, like Nolan Gorman up here, you expect him to play, you know, definitely against every right-hander that pitches at a minimum. And so, you know, just trying to think through how you would manage that is really the biggest test. And we also don't want to be overly knee-jerky on the very first topic we were talking about earlier on just where we are with Paul DeYoung. So, like, it's a little, little time happen, but it's great to see what he's doing down there. I think that's very exciting, and uh, I'm not overly surprised. Here's the three things that he brought up there, Alex. The three, three things, honestly, that we've talked a lot the about. The T-bone three that we picked up on this comment. Boom. Number one, defense. You don't want to give up defense, and that would certainly point to Tommy Edmond and what he's been doing for you at second base both this season and previously when he won a gold glove. Number two, you got to get him every day at bats against at least right-handed pitching that you're seeing. That would go to the conversation that we've had in the past about Corey Dickerson and exhausting that option as your designated hitter first before you potentially bring up a guy like Nolan Gorman. And then And the third thing, unprompted, he mentioned Paul DeYoung in relation to a question about Nolan Gorman. Now, why would you do that, Alex? Those two don't play the same position. There's nothing about Nolan Gorman that should impact Paul DeYoung's future. Unless there's at least some consideration down the road of potentially having to move Tommy Edmond over to shortstop. So I think there's a lot of different things that are factoring into the decision on Nolan Gorman. And this is something that I would expect will be more of a June decision as opposed to a May decision. I think you're exhausting Corey Dickerson as your left-handed option at DH. You want to see what you've got in both DeYoung and Sosa for a longer term before you decide what to do at your shortstop situation. And right now, Tommy Edmonds hitting so well that he's forcing their hand at second base as well while he's playing great defense there. So there's no pressure for them to bring up Nolan Gorman right now, and they want to exhaust all of these other options first. Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me, that takeaway, was the Paul DeYoung comment because it, it does sound like hearing him say that, that the only way Nolan Gorman's going to get that call up is if they have to absolutely move Paul DeYoung out of the lineup and Tommy Edmond over to shortstop, which is what we talked about yesterday. I, I think it comes down, before you're even talking about Tommy Edmond, you're doing Paul DeYoung for the rest of the leash length that he has, and then you're looking at Edmundo Sosa, who had a rough game last night, but then you get to the point where you say, okay, well, now we need to bring the Nolan Gorman experiment. And maybe I'm off with this guy, so you tell me. But it also didn't sound like Nolan Gorman as a DH for the way that he was explaining that with Nolan Gorman. I think he could be. I think they want to find out if Dickerson can fill that role first, though, because you yeah. paid him $5 million to potentially be that guy. If he can do it, if Dickerson ends up, and I don't know if this is going to be the case or not, but let's go down this hypothetical road together, Alex. If Dickerson starts hitting, and he becomes a 270 hitter with a little bit of pop the way that they expected him to be, I don't think Nolan Gorman will be getting that role. But if he struggles, if he continues playing the way that he has thus far, and he's batting 170 or 200 by June 1st, I think that's when you could see him come up and get those DH opportunities for you as your left-handed option. But see, I, I think there's more guys in front of Nolan Gorman for the DH before they're calling him up as the DH. Because for a left-handed I, I, option? Yeah, because I think if Brendan Donovan hits well as the replacement for these guys at first and third, they're going to give him some opportunities at DH. I don't. I, I reading and, between the lines last night, I think he's here as a bench bat, and they don't. They view Lars Newtbar as a more premium option for their big league roster than they do um, Donovan. And I think they're okay if Donovan doesn't get a bunch of at bats, a bunch of opportunities. They're not worried about that. They would be worried about it with Newtbar or with uh, Gorman. 
And then that's where I was going next. Newt Bar's the other one that I feel like if Newt Bar's hitting well, he's going to get the call up before Nolan Gorman as a DH if Dickerson struggles. So I, I really think one. the path for Nolan Gorman to get to the bigs is going to be Paul DeYoung and Edmundo Sosa struggling at shortstop. Yeah, and I'm with you because that was my biggest take. When I heard Mo bring up Paul DeYoung's name unpromptly yesterday when asked about Nolan Gorman, it, to me, confirmed what we were talking about yesterday. You know, we were kind of speculating, you know, okay, maybe you go two weeks with DeYoung here after he's had his 48 hours, see what he looks like. After this off day, you give Sosa basically a month run and see what he does. And then, oh, maybe you'd end up throwing Edmund over to short. But do you really want to move a gold glover? I, I think hearing that from Mo yesterday made me go, okay, that seems to be kind of the way that they're probably going to approach this. I, I do think if DeYoung and Sosa struggle at short, I think there is actual consideration to move Tommy Edmond over to shortstop and then plug in Nolan Gorman at second base. I, I think they are legitimately considering it because I don't think that was, uh, BK, you say it, read into their actions, not their words. I'm going to read into that though a little bit because I, he did not bring up Paul DeYoung's name um, promptly on accident. That's just something Mo does not do. So I, I think there were some tea leaves being uh, started to, or breadcrumbs being thrown around to potentially see the path towards what happens if the two shortstops don't start hitting here soon. I think it's totally fair. I, I think that's, I think there are two simultaneous paths presenting themselves to the Cardinals for Nolan Gorman. Either he becomes your DH or he's starting at second base with Edman as your shortstop. I think one of those two is as likely as path to get to the big leagues. I think I would bet on the DH option though. I think they will decide eventually that Sosa or DeYoung is good enough defensively at shortstop and they don't want to take away that defense at second base. You're robbing Peter to pay Paul at that point. And their offense, I do believe, will start playing well enough that you can you can afford to have a defense first player at shortstop. And that's when I think you're going to see Nolan Gorman get those opportunities as your left-handed option at DH. Coming up in 15 minutes or so, we'll get some questions and answers. 65780 is here. Comfort service text involved in the show. But coming up next, Jeremy Rutherford, our Blues insider for 101 ESPN and The Athletic. The Blues play against the Avalanche tonight. It's the least hype game between these two teams that we've seen in years. Talk to JR about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. It's time for the Rutherford Report on 101 ESPN. Anything you folks want to know about the fascinating world of pro hockey, here we go. Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. A big game is being played tonight, and it feels like nobody's talking about it. The Blues are taking on the Avs on ESPN, and you'll hear it right here on 101 ESPN on the Blues Radio Network. Uh, starting at 7.30 will be your pregame coverage with our guy Alex Ferrario. We will have puck drop for you coming up at 8.30. But right now, we're going out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line to be joined by our Blues insider for the Athletic. He's Jeremy Rutherford joining us here on the show. Jared, what's going on, man? Not too much. Just getting ready for this preview of the second round matchup. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But really, <laughs> we'll see. Maybe, maybe what are you looking for in this one, Jr.? You've got the Abs who are resting seemingly everybody. They've lost four straight, and nobody's worried about them. The Blues who are on this crazy point streak. But other than kind of home ice advantage in the first round, there's not a whole lot to play for right now. What are you actually looking for in this game? Yeah, that's the biggest thing. It's the home ice advantage against uh, Minnesota. And, you know, they have Arizona tonight. They've got their three uh, last games are, are all at home. Of course, the Blues are tonight on the road, and then we'll wrap up with uh, Vegas on Friday. And the Blues need to win both games, honestly, uh, to, to have a chance at that uh, second place and the home ice advantage. You know, then Minnesota would have to get five out of six points in those three games uh, to, to have a chance. So 
you know, I think that uh, that's the biggest thing. But, you know, things aren't going well for Colorado right now. They've lost four in a row. You know, I've talked to some people around here, and they're kind of coasting to the finish line. They've got some guys out ranting and sick. You know, Landis Scott will be back before the playoffs. Taves is out with an injury. Uh, so they've been struggling, some, some issues with the Colorado team. So uh, I think the biggest thing is that you're playing good hockey heading into uh, the playoffs, and the Blues are doing that right now. JR, we found out Chris Kerber, or from Chris Kerber on the broadcast Saturday what Craig Berube's plan is for the goaltending the rest of the way. Bennington expected to play tonight. Ville Husso expected to play on Friday, and Berube kind of alluded to the fact he didn't want Husso sitting around for a long time in between Tuesday and the playoff game. Does that pretty much solidify for you that Husso is starting, and is it the right decision? Yeah, I think it does, uh, you know, point that direction that Huso be your starter. They they did play Bennington back-to-back games. And for one second, you think, hey, are they trying to, to see if he's got it before they make that decision? Uh, but I think when they mapped out these last few games, they did want Huso to play that last game against Vegas. So you give back-to-backs to Jordan Bennington. Uh, so tonight we'll see him against uh, Colorado. And then you'll see Huso on Friday against Vegas. And, and that's the key, uh, like Craig Bruby has probably indicated. Uh, you don't want Billy Huso sitting four or five days prior to playing game one against Minnesota. And I think it is the right decision. I think uh, he deserves it. He's earned it. He's the goalie that's been making the stops this year. And the situation is this. If you've got a Huso who's been good all year sitting on your bench while you start Jordan Bennington, just kind of on the premise that he's been there before and he can win some games in the playoffs, well, what if he doesn't have it turned around completely? He's looked really good the last stretch. He's won his last five games. But I don't think that anybody can guarantee that he's truly back. So I think you got to go with your best. They're going to do that, it looks like, with Billy Husso. And then they've got a Jordan Bennington on the bench who's been playing well if they need him. JR, what are you expecting the fourth line to look like over the final two games and then once we get into the playoffs? Well, I wrote about it a couple days ago, and I, I wrote about it because they've looked really good. I like that combination of uh, Logan Brown and, uh, and Dakota Joshua, and then you have Nathan Walker on that side. But they had to make some room for Tyler Bozek. He came off the LTIR. And so they sent Dakota Joshua down. Do we see Joshua come back? I think we probably do at some point. But guys, listening to Tyler Bozak say that he feels uh, really good coming back from that groin tear, listening to Craig Bruby talk about the experience he brings, I think there's a, a possibility that, that he's in that game one lineup if he continues to progress and, and knock the rest off these next couple of games. So we'll see. So, uh, you know, at this point, you know, if I had to say it, it looks like Bozak would be in that lineup unless something were to change between now and then. Jer, we had this conversation yesterday, and of course, Jordan Kyrou's kind of had an up-and-down season since the All-Star break, and we talked about how how necessary it is to have Kyrou playing at his peak in the playoffs. Do you feel like it's necessary to have Kyrou playing that way, or can they get by if he's not playing at his best? No, I think this is going to be a tough matchup any way you look at it. Uh, we, we look at Minnesota, I think they're going to come and, and play physical. We've seen the Blues... Uh, lift their uh, physicality here lately, especially Ivan Barbashev. But what the Blues have won with this year is a ton of skill, and Jordan Kyrou's been a big part of that. So can they win a series where Jordan Kyrou has one or two goals and doesn't show up like people know he can? Yeah, they can win that, but it's going to be a heck of a lot easier if this guy's you know playing the way he can. And, and it isn't necessarily the scoring. As we've seen, they've got plenty of guys who can pick up the scoring when guys aren't going right. But it's the errors. It's the mistakes. If Jordan Kyrou overskates a puck or turns it over in the D zone like he did the other night, you know, it could be 3-1 Minnesota, and then the Blues are down one game in that series. So, you know, he just can't have those types of mistakes. If he does that, he could cost them. 
Jared, the most surprising Blues performance this year has been by who? To me, it's got to be Tarasenko. And even though, you know, I spoke to his doctor prior to the season and he said that uh, he said that uh, he was healthy and ready to go and, and motivated. I don't think there's anybody that could have predicted 34 goals, you know, 82 points. That's a career high in points, 48 assists. You know, we could talk about Robert Thomas. He has definitely taken that step. You know, I'm not trying to you know, toot the horn, but I felt like going into the season, you could see that from him this year. You know, he had that potential. It was just a matter of reaching it. So, you know, you could look at this and, and say Thomas, but it, to me, it's Tarasenko. Look, nobody wanted to sniff Tarasenko in a trade. Nobody wanted him. Any one of those teams that were in discussions with uh, Doug Armstrong or thought about trading for Vladimir Tarasenko, none of them would have expected 82 points out of him this season. So to me, he's been the most impressive, surprising, however you want to look at it. Jer, help clear up this confusion for me because the Blues have been playing like one of the best teams in the National Hockey League. They've scored one of the top scoring teams in the National Hockey League. And yet I see nobody talking about Craig Berube as the Jack Adams Award winner for the best coach. Why is that? Yeah, it's it's probably a combination of things, you know, just off the top of my head, you know, they probably feel like he had had the team had uh had the the, the depth up front, uh, the scoring, you know, but you know, it's one thing to say that you have that depth, it's another thing to coach it and make sure that all the egos get put aside and everybody's, you know, getting their points and feeling happy about things, you know, mixing up the line combinations when they need to be, things like that. So it is a lot to manage, it is a lot to coach even though you come into the season with that type of roster. I think he's done a remarkable job. You know, I think all the coaches, all the teams that have dealt with uh, the schedule and the COVID issues, you know, probably deserve a little uh, tip of the cap there. Uh, but, you know, if he's not getting it nationally, you know, I've just come to understand over the years that that's just what, that's just what happens. Uh, but certainly we in St. Louis know what kind of job they've done. Final question that I've got for Jeremy Rutherford, our Blues Insider for 101 ESPN and The Athletic. You should follow him on Twitter. He's at J.P. Rutherford. Uh, JR, we talked about this last week with Greg Wyshynski of ESPN, but I wanted to get your thoughts on it because as of today, Colorado is the top points percentage team in the Western Conference. Minnesota is number two. The Blues are fourth, but right behind Calgary by percentage points because Calgary has played uh, one fewer game than the Blues have. It's entirely possible the Central Division will have the top three teams in the West in points by the end of the season. Do you think the NHL should or will give consideration to going with the one through eight format in the playoffs in the near future? I think they need to. Will they? You know, I don't know. I don't think so. If I had to give you an answer, you know, they seem pretty, uh, you know, stuck on, on when they make a change. You know, they don't want to go back on it. Uh, I do think the one to eight is more fair. You know, I think if you break it down uh, and look at what the matchups would be one through eight heading into the Western Conference playoffs uh, this year, you know, I think it looks a lot more fair than the Blues playing Minnesota in the first round. You know, it does create some intrigue. It creates some great first-round matchups. You know, I get it. But don't we want those types of matchups to be towards the end of the playoffs in the third and obviously the fourth round? So, uh, I don't know. It just seems like with everything the NHL's done in the past that I've witnessed, you know, they don't like to go back on things and sort of admit that they've uh, made a mistake. Jer, final one I wanted to ask you, and we've yep. heard David Perron talk about how, in his mind, he'd like to see the team start on the road in the playoffs. We've heard Craig Berube talk about the importance of home ice advantage. How important do you feel like home ice advantage is going to be in the first round against Minnesota? I think it's going to be a really big. I think it's going to be big. That's a hard place to play for anybody who hasn't been to that XL Energy Center in uh, Minnesota. You know, they bring it. 
And especially with the, the uh, improvement that Billy Garen's made with that team, you know, a couple of years ago they were, they were good, but I don't think anybody up in Minnesota felt like they were ready to make that push and play a couple rounds in the playoffs. I think they feel like they're there this year. And so that place is going to be rocking for game one. And, you know, I understand where David Braun's coming from. You start on the road, you put your head down, and you go. It kind of zeroes you in a little bit better. Uh, but I think for all purposes that the Blues are concerned with, they've played great at home. Of course, they've played great on the road here lately, 9-0-1 in their last 10. So they're capable of going up to Minnesota and beating that team. But I think uh, if you had your choice, you have to pick Enterprise Center. He's Jeremy Rutherford. Find his great work over at The Athletic. JR, we appreciate the time as always, man. Enjoy the game tonight. Anytime, boys. Thanks a lot. You got it. That's Jeremy Rutherford joining us here on 101 ESPN. Alex, to my question that I asked him, if you were to go by points and you were just to put it one through eight in the Western Conference right now, it'd be Colorado versus Dallas as your one eight matchup. You'd have Minnesota versus Nashville, which would be a heck of a lot of fun to watch. Man, that'd be good. Calgary versus the Kings, and it would be St. Louis against Edmonton. Those that make would a be, lot more sense to me than the way that it's currently constructed with Minnesota versus St. Louis and then Colorado getting that first wild card team. And Minnesota versus Nashville would be such a good first round that people would underestimate. But I like the matchup that the Blues would have against Edmonton in the first round. I agree. Now, the tra- the travel's not great for you because, I mean, you're traveling to the West Coast and that sucks. But... I think that would be a beneficial matchup for the Blues. And then if I'm not mistaken, you'd be taking on Minnesota in the second round, correct? If you'd Minnesota probably, were to win? Depending on if they reseed or not, if they don't reseed, you would take on Colorado still in the second round. So it would not change that for you. But yeah. if they do reseed, uh, if somebody in the lower seeding ends up winning in that first round, you would take on uh, potentially Calgary or Minnesota. Yeah, so I, I think... Round. I always have said that that's the way to go because it builds up towards the Western and Eastern Conference Finals because that is the best of the best rather than putting the Blues in Colorado in the second round or, in all honesty, Blues-Minnesota might look like a Western Conference Final by the end of this series for all we know. Yeah, the other thing, I, the reason why I think it might change, Alex, is because of owners. You know who would really like to see the best teams advance further into the playoffs? The guys who are making money off of their teams going further into the playoffs. The Blues get the gate revenue or the Minnesota Wild, for example. Like, Imagine if you're Minnesota. You have the second best record in the conference right now. And you have to take on the Blues who could finish with the third best record in the conference right now. And you're going to do so and you potentially lose and it's over. Instead, you could be, if you're Minnesota, going up against Nashville, who has the seventh best record in the Western Conference. Like that's... That's the one that makes it really tough. So uh, if you end up losing in that first round, you lose out on that gate revenue from the second round. It totally changes what your revenue looks like. Well, and instead of Greg Wyshynski's argument of rewarding teams that are, you know, to are giving more revenue to teams to add more teams to the playoff push, why not just reward the teams that had a successful season in terms of getting the lower level matchup in the first round? Because that's where the revenue is going to come from. And you know, I'm I'm here for both of those things, but neither here nor there. I agree with your argument that you're making for. For, uh, for one through eight. I with, appreciate it, buddy. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 15 minutes, today's a big day in the development of Jordan Hicks. We'll talk about him and what today means for him potentially staying in the Cardinals rotation at 12 o'clock. Questions and answers, though, coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text now to 65780. It's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 
ESPN. Comfort service tax line for questions and answers. Let's start out with this one. Alex from the 314. Going into the playoffs, who do you believe will or should be on that fourth line for the Blues? If Tyler Bozak's saying he feels great, I believe it will and should be Bozak in the center, Nathan Walker, and Alexi Torovchenko as his wingers. Because I think that line provides everything. You've got the leadership, you've got the little uh little spark in Nathan Walker, and you got a big, fast body in Alexi Torovchenko. I think that should be the fourth line in the playoffs because I think they would match up really well against Minnesota. I think they're going to have a moment against Minnesota. I agree with you. I think that will and should be the line for their fourth line going into the playoffs. I think that line has the potential to have a, a moment in one of the games where you look back on it and you say to yourself, the Blues won that game because of what the fourth line did. Don't know what it'll be. Might be just cycling the puck and having some physical presence. And then you get another line shift out there and they're able to score the goal. And the fourth line basically created it. I don't know what the moment will be, but those guys with the way they're playing right now, I think they're going to have a moment in the in the first round. I would agree with that. And I, I like that as the line combination. I think that's what it's going to be for the fourth line. And, and they're going to have to, in my opinion, have a moment because, look, as much as we talk about, you know, that brain chin line is going to be important. And then you're going to have your top two lines matching up against Minnesota's top two. I think the fourth line is going to have that moment. I think they're going to need that moment in terms of maybe it's just stealing one game. Maybe it's a goal from a uh, Nathan Walker gets in there, makes a shot and scores. And then you talk about that as that was the momentum shifter in a game. I think they're going to need that because I think they're going to have to steal a game for the Blues in the first round. Six, five, seven, eight, oh, zero comfort service text line from the three, one, four guys. My little girl's almost two years old. I have tickets pretty close to the home duck out tonight. If I could only get one autograph, who should I get that will mean something to her when she is older? can only get one Cardinals autograph tonight. I would go Albert Pools. That will mean something to her that you got that in his final season, his return to St. Louis. I think that would be the one that I would get. What would you go with, Alex? Albert, Yachty, or Wayno would be really good, but I'd say Nolan Arenado because I think you're looking at a guy who will be in the Hall of Fame by the end of his career. I think that's a pretty impactful autograph to have. That's a good one. And when she's coming of age, she'll probably still be here too in playing, so she could look back on that. Yeah, that yeah. would be the thing. That would be kind of the thing that I would look at. I, so I would probably, I would probably go Nolan Arnado as well. I, I think Pujols is a good choice because you can, like you said, you have that reference. But I think it, as she grows up and if she's going to get into baseball and start watching it, it's going to be someone that she's going to see playing. So I would probably go with That's fair. Nolan Arnado or maybe like a Tyler O'Neill. I think he's going to end up being here long term. Dylan I'm, Carlson, one of those guys. I'm surprised BK didn't say Harrison Bader because he's a winning player. True. He is a winning baseball player. Uh, six, Did five, they seven, win last night? They're not going to win every game that he's out there for, man. Well, that's six one seven eight always here. Comfort service text line for questions and answers from the six one eight guys. What's your level of concern about the Cardinals' offense? Watching last night, I couldn't help but be worried about the way that they've performed against the quality pitching that they've seen so far this year. I just I can't judge them against Max Scherzer because I think there are people are anybody's doing that against Max Scherzer, especially when he's locked in like he was last night. I mean, the the, the movement on his pitches was just absurd. So I, I can't be upset about the offense against that. And I think from what we've seen so far this season, it's been good. Although I think more guys need to start contributing other than Albert Pujols and Nolan Arenado. I'm a little concerned, but not a lot. And the reason I have some concern is it's because it's the spot we talked about heading into the year. And it's that five, six, seven, eight. They have not looked that impressive so far this year. And, and last night, look, I get it. It's Max Scherzer. Everybody's outmatched against Max Scherzer. 
but there were not a lot of competitive at-bats against Max Scherzer in those spots. Now, Yachty did come up clutch late in that game, so that made me feel a little bit better. But 5-6-7, I did not see a whole lot of production that looked really outmatched, in my opinion, against Max Scherzer. I think that we're trending in the direction of, okay, it's time to be not worried, but have it on the back of your mind. What do they do against right-handed pitching? I think it's less about the quality pitching and more about the handedness right now. That's concerning to me because everybody struggles against really good pitchers. That's why they're really good. Otherwise, we wouldn't be with them that way. Max Scherzer has won seven or this team has won 17 consecutive times when he starts the game in the regular season. It's absurd. This isn't just a Cardinals problem. It's a Major League Baseball problem. Nobody hits against Max Scherzer. But right now, the Cardinals are 24th in OPS against right-handed pitching. The only teams that are behind them thus far are the Arizona Diamondbacks, Detroit, Baltimore, Texas, Chicago, White Sox, which is a little bit surprising on that one, and the Cincinnati Reds. Most of those teams stink. The company that you're keeping at the bottom of the league right now is not good enough. So until they start hitting against right-handed pitching, that's something worth monitoring. But no, I'm not super worried just yet about this offense. I do think they're going to get back on track. So far, you've had basically nothing out of Tyler O'Neill, Dylan Carlson. And I think those guys are going to be good hitters by the end of the year. So, and it's just now starting that you're seeing Paul Goldschmidt become himself. We've, reached, we've reached Goldie season. It's yeah. time. T- Tyler O'Neill starting to make me concerned though. I thought he looked great yesterday and two days ago Sunday he had a couple of really hard hit balls. I actually I'm going to go the opposite way from you Alex. I think Tyler O'Neill and Paul Goldschmidt are both turning it around right now. All right. Looks like I'll be right then. Coming up in 15 <laughs> minutes, we'll play a game of bet it or forget it. 65780 is your comfort service text line if you have a scenario that you want us to bet it or forget it. But next, today's a big day in the development of Jordan Hicks. What's it mean for him? What's it mean for the Cardinals as the rosters start shrinking here within the next uh, few days? We'll talk about that next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. I'm encouraged on what we're seeing with, with Mr. Hicks. I think, you know, you're going to have to continue to take those steps forward in the sense of see that pitch count continue to grow. Um, obviously, beneficiaries of the, the expanded roster right now. So at some point when you are back to 13 pitchers, you know, having him being able to get to 60 or 65 or even higher is going to be really important, especially if you're playing, you know, 14, 15, 16 straight days. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. That was John Mosaic yesterday talking about Jordan Hicks, who is making the start once again today, Alex. It's his second start in the big leagues going up against the Mets. First pitch in that one starting at 645. There has been a little bit of an amendment to that statement from John Mosaic. This comes from Major League Baseball this morning. There is an agreement between the MLB and MLBPA as the play as both parties monitor player health. The maximum of 13 pitchers on active rosters set to begin on May 2nd will instead go into effect on May 30th. A 14 pitcher maximum will be in place from May 2nd to May 29th. So you're still going to have the roster shrink coming up here within the next, what is it, six days or so from 28 man rosters to 26 man rosters. That's still in effect. But it was supposed to be 13 position players, 13 pitchers starting on May 2nd. Now you can have up to 14 pitchers on your roster. The reason why I bring that up in our conversation about Jordan Hicks is because what John Mosaic just said there 
Uh, that was going to make things interesting on what they decided to do with him. If he was still around three innings as a maximum threshold, you might have had to get creative here with the way that you utilize your roster. I wonder what's going to happen here with Hicks, with the 14-man pitching staff potentially for the Cardinals. How do you go about maneuvering this, Alex, over the next week or two when you have to make some of these big roster decisions? Boy, I don't know, because this is confusing for me as well, especially Ali Marmol's comments uh, yesterday talking about how they don't foresee piggybacking him and they want to make sure that he is a part of the rotation. I I guess the way you make it work is the fact that they're going to slow play Jack Flaherty. And I I don't think the Cardinals would have this mentality, but I also feel like the Cardinals are viewing it as, well, we're going to wait until Jack Flaherty is 100%, and by then we're assuming somebody's not going to be available in the rotation. It's the cliche saying of, well, it always seems to work itself out. Other than that, I really don't know how you make this work because if they don't see him as a long guy in the bullpen, if they don't see him as a piggyback option off of Dakota Hudson or Jack Flaherty, then he's in your rotation and it's either a six man rotation or somebody's coming out of it. And maybe that puts some pressure on Dakota Hudson to really start getting right. Otherwise he becomes a long man. Yeah. It's, it's going to be very interesting how they decide to do this. And with the roster shrinking, the reason Mo wants Hicks to get up there is because you're not going to be able to have him, like you said, BK, where he can only go three innings because then it becomes really difficult and very taxing on your bullpen. Now they can have the Memphis train go up and down if they wanted to, among relievers. I I don't know if they'd want to do that, but now I find it curious, you know, depending on what you see from Jordan Hicks tonight will determine, in my opinion, whether or not you decide to carry 14 pitchers when you get about to the time on his next start. His next start is Sunday, I think we figured, and if I'm not mistaken, that's when that uh, limit begins, or is it right before? The next day. The next day. Yeah, that'll be the last day that you're able to carry that extra pitcher for now. So these next two. Then these next two starts, including this one tonight, are going to be those kind of trial runs to see how he looks. Can he build up to 65, 70 pitches? Because that, in theory, could get you around four to five innings. And if you can do that, the way this bullpen is situated now with a bunch of these guys being able to go two innings, you can kind of piece it together. But if he can't and he has to continue to just be a three-inning guy, you almost have to carry a long reliever, in my opinion, like a Jake Woodford. And if that's the case, you almost would think that the Cardinals would potentially look at carrying that 14th pitcher if not I think you can just you know okay Woodford thanks for being here we're gonna have to send you down along with Aaron Brooks and then you've got your 13 and 13 and you'll be fine but again that I think that all comes down to Jordan Hicks Jordan Hicks has to be able to become a five inning starter for you at minimum because otherwise you need a long reliever. You can't continue to throw out guys for two-inning stretches because then you're going to burn them and it's just going to have kind of this uh, snowball effect as a week goes along. So, so BK, clarify something for me. So May second is when you is when the rosters d- decrease a little bit, but you they can go, go twenty eight to twenty six. So you've got to go down two two players on your roster. But you could go fourteen and twelve rather Correct. than thirteen thirteen. But on May thirtieth, does it have to go thirteen thirteen? Correct. Yeah. May okay, May so May second, you can have fourteen pitchers. By May thirtieth, it'll go back to the regular rules of. 13 13, pitchers, 13 13 position players as your maximum. Starting on May 2nd, though, the big thing here, your roster is going to get cut down to 26. So I think the first move that's pretty obvious, at least based on the way that things are structured right now, Packy Naughton will go down. So now you're down to 27-man roster. Be honest, I forgot Packy was up. Yeah, I did too, actually. (laughs) You've got 14 14, uh, pitchers and 13 position players. And then it's a decision of Brooks, Woodford, and Donovan. Again, with the current roster, who would you send down from that? I would go Woodford in that situation because you've still got Brooks as your long man in your bullpen if you need him to provide that role. 
I think Donovan, or at that point, maybe you do have Newt Barr back up with a big league club. They provide value to you that I think is more than Woodford, who has appeared literally in two games so far this season. I would rather have Woodford go down to Memphis. You can be in their rotation, lengthen yourself back out, and he's your sixth starter if and when you need him later on this year. I absolutely just do not understand that. Woodford is a better pitcher than Aaron Brooks. I agree, but Brooks isn't used very often. And right now, Woodford basically isn't used. So by sending him down to AAA, I'm actually saying he's valuable to me. It's me telling Jake Woodford, I know this doesn't feel good because you're going to be in AAA as opposed to in the big leagues, but I'm doing this because I value you, similar to the Lars Newtbar situation right now. He's down in Memphis because they value him. They need him to get at-bats, and he wasn't getting them here because he's not as good as their current outfielders. And Jake Woodford, I'm sorry, you can't get in my rotation And you're held for situations that just don't arise very often with this team. It's either a mop-up duty situation or you're up by so much, you throw him out there to just eat the innings at the end of the game so you don't have to throw your high leverage relievers. They've got too many guys that are good in the bullpen right now. It's a good problem to have, but the guy who ends up getting on the outside looking in as a result of it is Jake Woodford. So I think he's the guy that I would send down. And if you end up needing him in a spot, you can always bring him back up and send Donovan down then. And I was going to say, I think right now he's your sixth starter as well. If you If it comes down to... I think they've got a doubleheader, if I'm not mistaken, in early May. I think they've got a doubleheader at the Cups that was either scheduled or it was a rain out that they well, they haven't even been to Chicago. So it's a scheduled doubleheader. So that's a game where you potentially look at it and you say, okay, if there's Jake Woodford. We've sent him down. We want him to get stretched out, get his work, and as a starter, he's the guy you call up. He makes his spot start, does that Tyler Lyons role where he's going to be up and down. He's going to be that spot starter when you need him. If for some reason, let's just say, I, I don't know, let's say Hudson has to go on the I.L. for just like – two starts or something like that, you can easily bring up Jake Woodford. He comes in, does his job, and can go right back down. I, I think it shows he's valuable because it, he's not getting the work in that long relief role, as you mentioned, VK. And honestly, I don't really view bullpens in terms of they probably should, but I don't view a long relief guy as a necessity in the bullpen as well, especially the way that these guys, these, every reliever in your bullpen can go two innings at this point, except for probably Giovanni Gallegos. But even then, I think you could stretch him out as well. And think about the guys that have been that in that role over the years, Alex. It, it's typically... I think Derek Gould has labeled it as the pitcher under glass where they're too good to be used in some situations, but not good enough to be used in the high leverage spots. And therefore you just get, you get put off to the side and it's like, well, you're once every two weeks you get into the game. So that's the way that I view it for Jake Woodford. I would personally go 13 and 13, but to the point of the beginning of this conversation, that goes back to Jordan Hicks. He's got to prove to you that you can do that and that you're not going to put yourself into a bad spot with him going maybe two innings, three innings consistently. Because if you do that and you don't have Jake Woodford here and you only have Brooks, for example, as your long quote unquote reliever available to you. Now you use him, you use up some of those other high leverage guys on the Jordan Hicks starts. And then the next day you're playing catch up. And this is where they were last June, where you've got guys in your on your rotation who can't give you any sort of length. And then you're compounding that with the next day starter also getting kicked in the teeth. And now you're screwed and you're playing from behind and you lose the next day's game because of what happened today. But if you're if you're if you're going that way with Jordan Hicks and you're expecting him to only be able to give you three, maybe four innings, then I would rather have a a Jake Woodford up here because I'd be talking to him as. You're my every fifth day guy out of the bullpen. They say they can't do that. And they also believe that Jordan Hicks can get to five. They think that by June, well, July, get there. 
he's going to be a guy that consistently gives you five plus innings. And, and, and why can't they do that with Jake Woodford? What do you mean in terms of him? Leah, why can't they use him in a piggyback role? Because now you're with a 13 man staff. You've got the eight guys in the bullpen and I'm holding back one now in Jake Woodford that can only go every fifth day. So I'm essentially working on any given day with a seven man bullpen for those other but, four days of the week. But you could go 14, 12 that way. Right right now. Sure. But once we get Come to 30, June, yeah. you can't any longer. And at that time, maybe Hicks is built up that way. Exactly. But if he's not, I so think what you're I would... saying is right now you would keep Woodford over Donovan. Absolutely, yeah. Because I, 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 I don't, I don't believe until I see it that Jordan Hicks can give me five innings. Right now, I'm only believing that this guy's got three, maybe four innings for me. I, I think his next I two starts will determine what you're saying. Exactly, and if for some reason he got he gets there, then it makes the decision easy. But if he still doesn't look like he's getting there, and Jack Flaherty is still a ways away, I. I I mean, maybe I'm in the minority here, but I am a lot more concerned when I need two or three innings from Aaron Brooks than I would be with Jake Woodford. Yeah, and I think that's a fair concern to have. But I, I just, I just look at it, you know, and, and in terms of what you're saying, carry 14 over 12. Then I'm really limiting what I can do in a game because last night we saw the Cardinals. Uh, I think they burned through two guys on the bench. Donovan came on as a pinch runner. Kisner ends up filling mm-hmm. in to catch. I don't think we saw the other guys. We didn't see DeYoung. We didn't see Pujols. Well, instead of that, instead of having two guys on the bench, if you make those kind of moves that we're talking about from last night, you're down to one. And, and you also have nobody no, to run. Yeah, and you have nobody to run. And you don't know when another scenario could come up to where, ooh, I actually wish I had a better matchup for, for I don't know, let's say Harrison Bader's up at the plate. Oh, I wish I had a better matchup. He doesn't hit this pitcher well. well I've already burned through my entire bench. And that's why... Yeah. I, look, I would r- rather carry four bench guys and just shorten up the bullpen by, what is it, one arm, than rather than go with that extra arm and have a shorter bench. The nice thing for them, too, with this team, they have the flexibility where they can do all of the things we're talking about, where it's like, right. hey, one day we'll have Jake Woodford up. The next day it's going to be Brendan Donovan. A few days after that it's going to be Lars Newtbar, and we're just going to churn through this thing over the next month or so, and that's that's probably the way they ultimately handle it. It's kind of like what John Mosellock always says, right? The opening day roster is not what it'll be at the end of the season. It's kind of how it is right now, but I do find it interesting. They've got some big decisions to make over the next really week, but then certainly thereafter. The easy one is Packy Naughton goes down early on. <laughs> And Sorry, then it's, a, I know it's unfortunate. Uh, really where it gets interesting though, is when Verhagen comes back, when yeah. Verhagen is healthy again, that's when you've got some big decisions to make. Cause Brooks probably ends up getting DFA'd. Um, and, and they need Verhagen at that point to be good because if he struggles again, and you've got Brooks who might end up elsewhere as a result of that. And Woodford's potentially down in the minors as well. Now you don't have nearly as much um, insurance for some of those guys that could go short in games coming up in 15 minutes. I got to ask Alex, what do you need to see from the Blues tonight? We got two games left. This is a big one tonight against Colorado. What do you need to see from them to feel good about them going into the playoffs? We'll do that coming up in 15 minutes. Better to forget it is next. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Vegas sets them up and we're here to make the call. It's BK and Ferrario's bet it or forget it on 101 ESPN. I'm not going to lie. I was ready for that. Was it bad? 
No, it wasn't Tanner didn't have your mic on. I didn't have your mic on. Six five seven eight zero is the air comfort service text line for bet it or forget it. Let's start out with this one, guys. Bet it or forget it. Jordan Hicks is still in the rotation on June first. I'll bet it. Because Jack Flaherty's not going to be back, and I don't know who else would be. I'll bet it too. I don't. I don't think Flaherty's going to be ready. He's the only guy that I would assume would be taking his spot. I don't think Woodford. Matthew Libertor. Libertor, maybe. A Libertore. He hasn't. Is he Italian? Of course he, he is. Listen to that name. <laughs> oh. uh, but I. I, I'll bet this. I, I think he'll still be in the rotation. I don't think you're going to have Flaherty. I don't think you see Libertor get called up. I don't know if he gets called up into the Hater. rotation this year. Hater? We Hater's going to be the starter? We could go He's acquire him. Hater. Team. You hate him. Oh, I get it. Now. I don't hate anybody, BK, other than you. I, uh, wow. I, Whoa, I'm going to say, I'm going to say better. He'll be there. I'm not, I don't <laughs> see who takes his spot. So, by the way, have you guys seen what uh, Zach Thompson has been doing down in AAA? Lights yeah. out stuff. He's just throwing flames. He fa- I don't remember who it was we talked to. We talked to somebody from MLB Pipeline on the Danny Mac show one time, and he said he seemed to have found his command, something that he tweaked on the Arizona Fall League, found his oh. command. And so far this year, he's done a really good job of not walking hitters, and that was his he's big back. issue. Yeah, so Zach Thompson is suddenly going deeper into games and not walking guys. Today, six and two-thirds innings allowed one hit, scoreless game against him one walk nine strikeouts through 94 pitches he was apparently sitting around 95 miles per hour with his uh fastball velocity according to kyle glazer of baseball america quote he dominated all day long with his fastball and his curveball zach thompson now on the season has walked two batters in four starts he has gone about what is it now 20 innings he's walked two batters Damn. So that's that's really encouraging for Zach Thompson because I thought he was kind of a lost cause coming into the season. I wanted to bring him up because maybe later on this year he'd be another guy that gets thrown into this mix. And if nothing else, if he's pitching well, he could be a trade piece for you later on this year that suddenly becomes more valuable. See, the difference between you and me, BK, is I never give up on somebody. I always got hope. Be, uh, Alex likes to live longer. He has yeah. optimism. I like to hope. I like to believe in people, BK. I am betting this as well. I do believe that Jordan Hicks will be a part of the rotation. I think he's going to be a part of the rotation all season long. Now, I didn't say a five-man rotation. Oh. But I think he's going to be a part of your rotation all season long. I think eventually they go to a six-man. 65780 is the air cover service tax line for bet it or forget it. Guys, bet it or forget it. The Blues will have at least five 20-goal scorers next year. They have oh. seven this year? Yeah, and aren't most no, they of them coming eight. back next year? They have eight 20-goal scores. So the only one that's not back right now is Perron. Yeah, I mean. And I think he'll I be back next year. They have the potential yes. to get to nine, too, because Falk's really close. 16. You think he's going to get four goals in the next two games? He scored like three in his last five. Yeah. That's a, that's a bold take right there. I'm going to go ahead and say that's not going to happen. I think he's got 17. I don't think you know how to count BK. He's got 16. Ryan O'Reilly has 17. Um, I'm going to bet this. I, I think that you could put, I think you could raise the bar a little higher. (laughs) You okay over there, buddy? Uh, Yeah. I was just, yeah. I think the real question is, will they have 525 goal scorers next year? That's a little tougher. Well, I mean, you've traded away Ivan Barbashev. So that's one that's gone. And he ain't getting to 25 next year. It's hard because I don't know what the, what the future is for Vladdy too. 
Like, I don't know if Laddie's here or if he's not here. So what makes it an interesting question, Alex. I'll say I'm going to bet this, though, because I think they still have the depth on scoring, and I think they have the elite centermen that can create offense. So if the better to forget it was five 20-goal scores next season, I'll say I'm going to bet it. What about 25? That's what I asked. No, you said 20. <laughs> I know, but I amended it because I think 20 is boring. Five I, think, I think it's very clear they're going to have at least 20. Are you saying five 25-goal scores? Yes. That's what they have this year. So Shen, Kairu, Buchnevich, Peron. And Thomas. Thomas ain't getting to 25. Wow. At 20 this year? That's probably the peak. I'll say I'm going to bet that 25, though. Uh, Saad might get close because Saad might be playing more power play time next season. Barbashev, if he's still here. Vladimir Tarasenko. I'll bet this. Five for 25. I think I'm going to bet Logan Brown, too. Oh, I know that Come ain't going to happen. He'll have 25. <laughs> I'll bet this. I think Thomas could get to 25. I, I think he's kind of tur- turning that curve in which he's going to become more of a shooter. And I've said this before. I think he's got the shot as a 25 to 30 goal scorer. Now, the other ones that I question is, is Vladdy going to be here? I'm not totally convinced that Jordan Kyrou is going to be here if you're going to go trade for a Matthew Kachuk. Um, but I think Booch can get there again. If Vladdy's here, he gets here. Peron, I think, will be back. He'll get there. Braden Shen, I could see Brandon Sa doing it, as Alex said. So I'm going to bet it. I- I'll take my chances. I'll go five for 25. I'm going to bet this as well. I'd be surprised if they don't get there. Got we, choked up thinking about how talk, emotional. Right, and I'm also, be. like a little bit of voice crack there. Can we talk about that? We oh, make fun oh, of mine. You, you want to talk about that, Tanner? Yeah. yeah. You want to yeah. talk T-Bone, about that? T Bone, I don't think you want to get into voice cracking conversations right now. 65780 is the air comfort service tax line <laughs> for Bet It or Forget It. Guys, bet it or forget it. The Cardinals will sign a 20 plus million dollar per yeah, year shortstop in the offseason. Forget it. I don't have to hear the question. Yeah, I don't even need to when hear I heard it either. Twenty-five I'm million, I went. That. I'm done. I don't 20, care where yeah, it's 20. at. Oh, even that twenty, too high. Yeah, too high. I'm out on that. Five now, mil? if you want to tell me, I'll do it. If you want to tell me that they're going to sign a guy for six mil from Japan, then yeah, I'm all in on that one. But no, it's not going to be that twenty million. For Carlos Correa, shortstop. starting shortstop, twenty twenty-three. He's on Minnesota for now. And PK, he's, he's, he's got to give up. up on that man. Trey Turner's I'm, more I'm likely than Correa. I disagree. Trey Turner is going to get a wild amount of money. Carlos Correa is not good right now. He will be. Oh, okay. Everything's going to be A-okay. But no, neither one of them are going to be the shortstop next year. Terrible. Terrible play there. That's your 2023 shortstop. Ooh, I like that. 65780 is the error comfort service text line for bet it or forget it. Guys, bet it or forget it. A right-handed pitcher will be on the mound against the Cardinals in game one of the playoffs, and Albert Pujols will be your starting designated hitter. Bet it. Ooh, this is spicy. I like it. It's Albert Pujols. Are you kidding me? Of course he's going to be. Just like Yachty's going to be in the lineup for game one as well. Oh, man. I'm trying to think who they would match up with. Potentially. Sh- oh, my God. Scherzer. Scherzer. <laughs> um, oh, God. Don't put Pujols out there, please. <laughs> I'll bet this. Walker Bueller. I want, oh, that's I, fine. He's awful. I, I want. I wonder how Ali would approach a playoff series. Do you play nostalgia for Game One no. and then you move yes. on? Well, f- then why are we starting Yachty? No offense, Yachty, but I mean, right now Kisner's your best catcher. Wow, did you just hear that, Alex? Why? Why do you hate Yachty, T Bone? I don't. It's just you know he hates Yachty and Albert. 
I always knew you were a Cubs fan, overrated. I love Wayno. I love Wayno. I always should have known you were a Cubs fan. Like BK's a Royals fan. You're from Illinois, man. It's all about the Cubs. Don't put me in the same category as BK. Well, BK loves the Royals. I, I'm going to forget this. I think Ollie sticks to the splits, and I think it's going to be, I'll say it, Nolan Gorman will be your starting designated hitter for the no. whatever the game is, game one. No. That's my that's my prediction. He'll be the starting second baseman for game one. I agree with Tanner. I'm going to forget this as well. I think that your starting designated hitter against right-handed pitching going into the playoffs will be Nolan Gorman. I think he will be batting sixth or seventh in your lineup. And I think you feel pretty good, pretty good about that going into the playoffs. Boo! Final one here. 65780 is the error comfort service sex line for bet it or forget it. Guys, bet it or forget it. Alex's guy, Jordan Davis, falls out of the top 15 in Thursday night's NFL draft. Man, I'm hoping because I want him 17th overall by the Chargers. <laughs> But I'm going to forget this one because Jordan Davis is too damn good to let drop that low. He will not get lower than Baltimore at 14th overall. Bet that right now. Mm. Somewhere between 1 and 14. I'm going to forget that. I think he's going to be in the top, what was it, number 15? Mm -hmm. I I think he's going to be top 15. We've seen some of the reports. The highest we've seen is, what, 9? I don't know if we've seen him any higher. 9 to Seattle. I think he's going to go in between that 9 and 14 range. I don't think he drops outside the top 15, so I'm, I'm going to forget this. Should be number one. I think he gets in the top 15 as well. I hope he goes 18th to the Eagles. Can we Whoa. do another one real quick? <coughs> we have time for no. one more? No. You're the guy running the show. What do you mean? Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> We're always late anyway. It's <laughs> true. Guys, better to forget it. The Cardinals steal at least 100 bags this year. Oh, my God. Where are they at now? The Cardinals on the season so far, let me see this. They are at 13 so far. So they're averaging just under one stolen base per game. In 2019, they stole 115 bases. It's the only time since 2010 that they've done so. Well, if I could do quick math for you guys on the air, averaging one per game is 162 stolen bases. So That's some really good math right there. I'm going to bet this. Only four teams stole 100 bags plus last year. One of them was Skip Schumacher's. Yep. Yeah, they were second at 110. I'm I'm going to bet this. They seem to be more aggressive on the base paths this year. So I'm going to bet this. I'll say they get over 100. How many 30 stolen base guys do you have? One? None? Maybe. Maybe one. I'm going to go two. Two. O'Neal Ooh. and Bader. I, I, I'm actually going to go Edmund. Edmund had 30-plus yeah. last year, so Ooh. I think he'll do it. He only has one so far this year, too. He only has one this year. I think they liked running O'Neal. I feel like I've seen a little bit more aggressive O'Neal on the base paths. I'm going to say it's going to be Edmund and O'Neal or Bader. One of those two will get 30. Uh, so, by the way, in the last 20 years, they've only had more than 100 stolen bases twice. 2019 and 2004 were the two t- two times in which they have done this. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we'll dive into the junk drawer. But next, what do you need to see from the Blues tonight to feel good about them going into the playoffs? We'll ask Alex that next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. The Blues play 
the abs tonight. And Alex, this is a game that very well could be a preview of the second round matchup for the St. Louis Blues. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. We'll have pregame coverage right here on 101 ESPN beginning at 730. Alex will have that for you. Puck drop at 830. Alex, what do you want to see? from them tonight. The Avs basically have everything locked up. They're playing for nothing down the stretch. The Blues are technically playing for home ice, but there are questions, I think fairly legitimate questions, as to what the value of that is in a first-round series. It matters, but to what extent for the players? What do you need to see specifically tonight against Colorado to feel good about the way that the Blues are playing right now going into the playoffs? I I don't know if I'm going to see anything that's going to make me feel better than I already do about this team because they won't see Colorado in the first round. And Jordan Bennington's in between the pipes. And Billy Huso, we know now, is the number one guy in the Blues. I believe they're going to be without Braden Shen still. I think Tory Krug is going to be coming back. So I don't feel like there's any outcome in this game that I'm going to walk away and say, oh, yeah, this team's going to go on a run. I feel like this team has a legit shot at going on the run. But one thing that I really do want to see in this matchup is how the Blues' defense handles this type of offense yes, because they, they have not seen yet this, this style other than Minnesota, probably in the last month or so. And when you're talking about a team that's going to have uh, Miko Ranton and back, they're going to have Nathan McKinnon playing Kale McCars on the ice. And then the only player that's not in the lineup, I believe is Gabriel Landeskog tonight. How do they fare against this type of offense? Because that's going to be the gauge that's going to be the meter against this team because everyone is still talking on a national stage of, oh, well, this defense, I'm not sure if they can hold, hold their own. I don't know how the goaltending is going to match up against the opposition. You'll find out tonight when you take on a team that's in the middle of a four-game losing streak all in regulation, Colorado's going to be pissed off. But if the Blues can still play a really tight game, I think I'm going to be a lot more impressed with how the defense has been playing. Yeah, that's the thing that I'm most looking forward to. Uh, by the way, I, I'm not sure Rantanen is going to play today. It sounds like he's going to be back on Thursday. He was at morning skate today. He's probably out tonight. But Devon Taves is going to uh, return to the lineup for them tonight. Uh, so they'll be without Landeskog and likely without Rantanen as well. But you still got Nathan McKinnon and uh, Nazem Kadri out there. So it's not as if this is a team that has no f- offensive firepower. I know they've been struggling lately, but it's still the Avs. Yeah. I want to see what the, the defense looks like tonight. This isn't a super physical team, but they're a team that can beat you with speed. And that should, should be an okay matchup for the Blues with the way that this defensive core is now constructed. I want to see what they look like against them, man. And especially, I want to see what your forwards look like against them. You know who I'm going to be keying in on again tonight, Alex, is Jordan Kyrou. Yeah. Jordan Kyrou's got to have a good game in this one because you got two more games now to prove you are back to being a responsible player for Craig Berube. And if he's not, I just don't know how much they're going to trust him to be on the ice consistently in the playoffs, especially against a Minnesota Wild team that can take advantage of those mistakes that you make in your own zone. So... I want to see what Jordan Cairo looks like against the abs tonight. And I want to see how that defense is able to not shut down, but at least slow down their top line in particular. Yeah. We'll keep an eye too. If Braden Shen's not back, uh, Bozak, I would imagine will stay in between that line and Brown is going to play on the fourth line. There's still some competition there on the fourth line for a playoff spot. So keep an eye on how the fourth line plays and honestly, BK, and we'll get back to the defense in a minute, but I really want to see how the blues do against this fast team in terms of them bringing the physicality, because we've talked so much about the blues being the, the passenger in those games where the other team tries to be more physical and that wakes the blues up. 
if this team doesn't want to play physical and their guy, Gabriel Landeskog, who is the guy who brings physicality, isn't going to be playing, I want to see the Blues be the aggressors in that category. I want to see them take it to Colorado and see how Colorado acknowledges that because that's going to be a telling mark for this Blues team in terms of their physical presence in a playoff series against Minnesota, especially if they can set the tone first against Colorado. But you're right with the defense. I mean, when you look at how Justin Falk's been playing, how Colton Pareko's been playing, how Marco Scandella's been playing, and if you're throwing Tory Krug back into this lineup, I mean, you have depth right now on defense that I'm not sure other teams can sit there and say that they have legitimate eight guys who can play in a playoff series, but your defense has been red hot offensively and defensively, but how do they do against this type of team? Yeah, you mentioned the defense, and that's something that I wanted to ask you about because we talked all the time about how the Blues have unbelievable scoring depth. Some of that honestly comes from the defense. I mean, you look at what Justin Falk has done. We mentioned this the other day. He's the highest goal production that you've had from a defenseman since Al McKinnis, which is high yeah. praise to say the least. Do we sleep a little bit on the depth that they have started to accumulate defensively now? Because you look at what Marco Scandella has done. He saved a goal and then scored one on the other going the other way on Sunday night. You look at what you've had so far from Callie Rosen, for example, he's not missing a beat for them. I mean, they, they have, and Nico Mikola had a pretty yeah. solid game on Sunday Saved as well. Sunday. This is, this is starting to be a deeper defensive core than I certainly anticipated it being. Are we sleeping on that aspect of this team a little bit? I think we truly are. Um, and I, I think one, you've had three consecutive games where you've allowed the opponent 25 or less shots on goal, which hasn't happened very often this season. But we've talked about it in the past in terms of the experience that they have now with Nick Letty. I mean, they have more experience on their blue line in terms of NHL games and playoff games than what they had when they went on that Stanley Cup run back in 2019. Now, you don't have the Bowmeisters or the Petrangelos on this team, but I think you have more depth in terms of players who can play in any spot. And I forgot if it was Nick Letty or Tori Krug that talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but somebody asked one of them, how beneficial is it to have guys who can play with anybody? And that's something that I, I kind of took for granted, but then you think more about it. Like, you have six defensemen right now, seven if you're going to include Mikola and eight with Callie Rosen. I'm not sure you could make the argument for Callie Rosen, but all of the other seven guys, you can intertwine anybody anywhere. You can put Mikola up with Colton Pareko. You could put Scandella down with Robert Bortuzzo, Krug with Colton Pareko, Letty with Pareko, Krug with Falk. You can intertwine guys wherever it may be, and they will still be successful. And I don't know how many teams can say that in terms of their depth on defense. Like, they have guys who are the top pairings and bottom pairings, but the Blues have guys who can play anywhere. And I think that is something that goes to show how deep this defense truly is going into a playoff series. The Blues take on the Colorado Avalanche tonight in Colorado. Alex, will have your pregame coverage for that one starting on 101 ESPN at 7.30. We'll have the puck drop for you coming up at 8.30. Blues finish out their regular season on Friday night against Vegas. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up in about 15 minutes, what was that moment for Yachty and O'Neal, and could that become something that gets them going offensively last night? We'll talk about that coming up at the top of the hour the junk drawer though it's coming up next we're right back to the pk and ferrario podcast presented by dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 espn let's open it up the junk drawer with bk and ferrario brought to you by together credit union pay yourself with every purchase open and achieve a checking account today 
Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Are the Mets for real? Is this, a, is this a legit contender? We'll talk about that coming up here in just a little bit. But, Alex, we, we're diving into the junk drawer now. What do you got for us today? Well, there's a family out in Massachusetts that just won a lawsuit, and they won $5 million, BK. Oh, nice. Yeah, but here's the problem. It's a lawsuit against a country club that they live in. So this family lives in a country club out in Massachusetts, Indian Pond Estates. And they like sued. They sued the country I live club. In something that has it, Alex. You know you've made it. I apologize for interrupting. What else is new? Go you, ahead. You know you've made it when the neighborhood in which you in which you live, there is something that says estates at the end. Oh well, you can do that on any neighborhood you live in. You just tell people you live in estates. Nah, like where do you BK? Where do you live? I live in St. Charles. Estates. Next, there you go, man. No, you no. made it. it you got a no damn estates. Peloton. I live. You next got a to damn Lindenwood. Peloton. <laughs> Hey, you made it if you're next to Lindenwood. No, so this family, this family sued sued the country club because they said they were being terrorized by golf balls. Oh, let me rephrase this. A family that lives in a country club sued the country club for being terrorized by golf balls. I think that's probably true. Can you imagine having golf balls consistently hit at your house, Alex? Yeah. Don't be an idiot and live in a country club. They had more than 651 instances of golf balls striking their property. Don't live in a country club. What do you think is going to happen when you buy a house on a golf course? There were multiple broken windows. Don't live on a country club. I'm with Alex on this one. I I have gone to so many golf courses where there are houses like on a hole or next to a hole. And when I... They thought they were buying a golf course view property, and what they ended up buying was a golf course in play property. It was apparent to anyone that this house was going to be struck as repeatedly as this one was. They would have never bought the property. Did they not go to the property? That's what I'm saying. How did they win this lawsuit? I'm reversing my stance on this. It's on a country club. Like, you are in a golf course when you bought this home. And and when I have, when I have, been on a golf course and there are houses like at the end of that hole you're aiming for them yeah kind of oh, alex you can't say that on the radio man well <laughs> i can but i also know that i am a terrible golfer and would never hit one but when i swing oh, I that golf- a terrible person but okay no yeah. terrible golf club no when when i hit that ball i'm saying to myself i don't feel bad if this hits the house because you bought a house in a country club i'm kind of with how do how do you win a lawsuit yeah, I don't understand how they won this lawsuit. I I respect it. $5 million for buying I mean, a, a, an it. estate next to a golf course, and then you decided, you know what? Uh-uh. Not a fan of the 591 golf or 651 golf balls that have been hit into our property. I'm I'm not only going to sue our whatever subdivision. I'm suing you for five bills. $5 million. See, I, I think it's a different story depending how far off it is on the golf course too. Because like I've hit a house while golfing before, but it was like of way are, off, yeah. way off on the course. I just completely pulled a drive and it hit off the roof. If you're like right behind the hole or something like this that, then just it smart totally business. makes sense. Oh no, it's not. It's no, it's not. I mean, sure, it's smart business because they won five million dollars, yeah. but it's stupid. I I am you, stunned that they won that lawsuit. 
you cannot try and sue a golf course that you live on and say, well, I'm being terrorized by golf balls. Apparently You're, you can, though. Well, that's the thing. You're essentially suing a golf course for allowing terrible golfers on their golf course. Yeah, the, the complaint said that past incidents have resulted in, quote, multiple broken windows. Including one instance on July 18th of 2018 when the ball struck a window in the home, shattering the glass and, quote, terrifying the plaintiff's young daughter, end quote, oh, come on. and resulting in the family contacting the police department to file a report. See, so, I, OK, I think they should get their money for the window that breaks. That totally makes sense. There's no way it's five million dollars worth, though. It, it, well, Alex, imagine, million times. imagine your young daughter is sitting at home eating her Cheerios and you as the father who's always trying to protect your young daughter crash suddenly there's a golf ball coming at a million miles an hour right at her head and you can't stop it and it hits her you're not suing as well for five million bucks of course you are well well yeah i'd be suing because there's no golf course around me right now so i'd be a little pissed off if somebody did that uh, see, and somebody, somebody's listening that lives on a golf course. And if they are, please text in Air Comfort Service text line 65780. I guarantee that when you fill out the paperwork to buy your house, you're filling out a disclaimer that says your house is in, in range of golf balls. Just so you know. So the country club is not responsible for any broken damage to your home. This is, this is amazing. I, I couldn't respect these individuals anymore. We, I went golfing a couple weeks ago with my buddies, and there were houses along the golf course, and we hit one, and we watched where it landed, and it landed in this person's backyard, and we pulled up next to it, and uh, there was a 13-year-old kid who was out there, and he, and you could tell he was faking it, but he was laying on the ground, and when we pulled up next to him, he stood up, and he's like, oh, is this your ball? And he's rubbing his head the entire time, and we're like, oh, yeah, sorry, and then he walked away, and he was laughing the whole time. That's what people do when they live next to golf courses. Alex called the cops on him right afterwards. That's the part Probably of the story that he didn't tell you Probably that this guy's a faker. Because Alex is the guy that calls. He's, he's a narco. He, he called the cops on the kids that were having the party next door on New Year's Eve. And now he's calling the cops on the kid that's C just trying to have a little bit of fun over by the golf course. CBK, you got to spin the narrative there, and you're spinning it too much because I saved those kids' lives from oh doing drugs and alcohol when they were underage. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll talk to Danny Mack about the Cardinals' loss last night, what he wants to see from Jordan Hicks later on today. Dan joins us at 115. Are the Mets real this time around? We'll talk about that next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. He's starting to feel better and uh, that's a plus for, for him and for us. So hopefully that's a uh, step in the right direction he builds off of that for sure now it didn't end up meaning what we thought it did at the time alex but yadier molina had a big at bat in the bottom of the eighth inning yesterday he was the one that started the scoring that ultimately led to the two runs that the Cardinals scored yesterday with alex ferrario and tanner hendrickson i'm brandon kiley that was ollie marmel yesterday after the game talking about yadi's big at bat where he singled uh to left it was a seven pitch at bat alex he was able to battle into it 
and he kept himself alive. And I wondered to, to Tanner, I'm going to be honest about this. I wonder, do you consider pinch hitting for Yachty here? Because Yachty has, has not had a whole lot of success at the plate so far this season. At that point in time, you're getting into the bullpen for the first time in the game. You've got May coming in. He's got the high velocity. I thought maybe in that moment you would consider going with Brendan Donovan. And you get the lefty-righty matchup, and you see what your chances are there. They stuck with Yachty, and he came through for them in a big way. Do you think there's a chance that that's the type of at-bat that can get Yachty or Molina going offensively? Because, man, they really need him to get something going offensively. I think so. I mean, we all knew it was going to take some time for Yachty to get back to himself. Whatever he was dealing with in the offseason, he got to spring training late. We talked about it with Katie Wu yesterday. But, I mean, we mentioned momentum earlier and confidence and momentum. They're funny things in sports, and I truly believe in them. And I think that's partially what Yachty needed. I think it's the equivalent of a guy in hockey who hasn't scored a goal and he gets one that bounces off of his butt and it goes into the back of the net. And then it's like, okay, he's out. He's He took the monkey off his shoulders. I think that's what Yachty or Molina did last night with that big hit for him. So I think that could be kind of a coming out party for Yachty or Molina. Obviously, you just want to make sure that he's He's up to what he needs to be in terms of shape and being able to maintain a long season for missing part of spring training. But, I, I mean, I, I think that's a jumping-off point for Yadier Molina, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that's the jumping-off point for Yadier Molina because that was a, as BK mentioned, you know, that was working the count, did a good job to stay alive, and then not only does he get the base hit, I mean, it was a pretty well-placed 96-mile-an-hour fastball that was, like, at the very bottom of the zone. And he's able to pull it, get it right between the shortstop and second baseman on the shift. So hopefully that is the coming out party because, honestly, the I like the idea of Kisner getting a lot of starts this year to get that Yadier Molina that Alex is talking about at 100% when it comes down towards playoff time. But if you can get just some sort of production from him offensively, you're basically got a two-headed monster, a catcher. Now, it's not a two-headed monster where we're talking like 30, 40 home runs from the two of them combined. No, but it's solid production from both of them, and both of them seem to be able to handle a pitching staff very well. So if you can kind of have that younger version that you're really testing out and helping keep Yachty fresh, but also testing him out to see what he's going to look like potentially for next season when Yachty retires and Andrew Kisner, and then you can also get somewhat of decent production from Yadier Molina, that's a really good thing for this Cardinals team. It's going to be something that can help push them towards that postseason run. I'll be the skeptical one. I'm not sure. I hope it is. I hope that's what gets him going because offensively right now he's been, I mean, based on some of the advanced numbers, arguably the worst hitter in baseball uh, so far this year. If you're looking at his barrel percentage, he doesn't have one yet on the season. If you're looking at his expected batting average on the season so far, it's at 170. His expected slugging percentage is 222. He does not have an extra base hit on the year. He has yet to take a walk on the season. It's been a really slow start to the season offensively for Yadier Molina. The only thing that I can say is that he has not been striking out. He's making consistent contact, which is a staple of Yadier Molina over the years, but he's got to start hitting the ball a little harder. He's got to start hitting with a little bit more authority, and you have not seen that at all so far from him. So my hope is that that's the kind of thing that can get him going. If there is one guy that I can point to from last night, though, that I think maybe could actually do that, I think it's Tyler O'Neill. In his last two games on Sunday, he had a couple of hits that were over 100 miles per hour. He was starting to hit the ball a little harder. And then yesterday you see him, and after Yachty ended up getting on base, O'Neal was the one that hit the base hit to be able to score uh, Bader and Donovan. That was a huge RBI moment for him. It's the first game this year, Alex, since the home opener that Tyler O'Neal had multiple RBIs in one game. 
he's the guy that I have confidence is starting to get it going again. Same with Paul Goldschmidt. I'm not, I'm not quite there yet on Yadier Molina. I, I need to see it before I believe it with him. Yeah, and it makes sense. I mean, especially at the age that he is and for what we saw in spring training when he was playing and then, of course, since the season begun, you're you're going to need to see a little bit more from Yadi or Molina. I just I I feel like when you're a pro like Yadi and you've done this enough, it all comes down to the way you're feeling at the plate. And I would imagine after a hit like that, you're feeling much better than what you were a couple of weeks ago when you just couldn't buy a hit right now. But I mean, he would be the last one on a list for me in terms of guys that I'm believing are turning the corner. You're right. Tyler O'Neill, Paul Goldschmidt, even Harrison Bader, I would believe will turn the corner before Yachty or Molina. Can we talk a little bit about the Mets? Because Why would we do that. This is a team that I I'm believing what they are as a team right now. You look at what their pitching is. It's really damn good, man. I don't know about the bullpen. It's all right. I, I don't I don't love it. Their rotation is very good, though. And you look at the lineup, and the reason why I believed in them coming into the year, and especially last night, I, I was so impressed by what they were able to do in, in that ninth inning. They are deep with proven solid hitters at the plate. They brought in Dom Smith as a replacement, a pinch hitter late in that game. Dom Smith is a really solid baseball player. They've got Mark Canna batting like sixth or seventh in their lineup right now. He was awesome for the A's. I love Mark Canna and what he can bring to a team. Jeff McNeil is batting eighth. He's a guy that could very well hit 300 for them this season with a decent amount of power. I think right now, if I'm looking across the National League and you have to, you asked me, hey, BK, who finishes the year with the best regular season record? I would place my bet on the New York Mets this year. Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of it's going to come down to Jacob DeGrom being healthy for them. That's going to really help them. But they, they, they do look like a better team than what they were last year. Last year, it was always so hard to believe because they would always fall apart towards the end of the season. Like, that was their track record. They've got a deep lineup. I just don't know if I'm believing in it as much. I think the Cardinals have a better lineup in terms of offense than the Mets do. Interesting. I, I think when Paul Goldschmidt gets to hitting, when Tyler O'Neill gets to hitting, you've got Tommy Edmond. You know Dylan Carlson will be there. Nolan Gorman is a piece of this puzzle. I think the Cardinals at the end of the season will have a better offense in terms of their starting nine than the Mets. See, that's interesting because I still think I would probably take the Mets offense because I think they're pretty solid one through uh, nine. The one spot they're missing right now would be catcher. They're not getting much production. I, I think Thomas Nito got the start yesterday. I think he was over. Three with three strikeouts got pinch hit for, and then you have James McCann, who I know is not hitting. But one through eight, I mean, to me, that offense is a solid a solid group of hitters there. I, I look at the Cardinals lineup. I think it's kind of top-heavy one through five, potentially one through six, depending on if Carlson slash Edmund, one of those guys, gets going in that sixth spot. To me, there's just not a whole lot of production that seven, eight, nine spot. Like Harrison Bader's been good so far, but I—, I I don't put him in terms of the good category yet. And then Paul DeYoung, we just haven't seen. You're not getting any production as short in the catching spot. You haven't got much from Yachty yet either. So I, I look at it right now, and I, I still think the Mets have a better offense. It, it, the part for me that it's hard to believe in the Mets are guys like Robinson Cano. I don't see that maintaining the level. Like I, Lindor and Olsen, those are the ones that I can see. Or not Olsen. Um, Alonzo. Alonzo, thank you. Those are the ones that I can see kind of maintaining that level of success. 
but the other guys is just kind of hot and cold. And I know everybody's offense is hot and cold, but I just think at the end of the season, it's going to be more consistent with the Cardinals offense than it would be with the Mets. Offense. See, I just think like Robinson Cano, they're going to try to make this work early on in the season. It's, it, it's kind of like Yachty, right? You're finding out what you have offensively, but with Yachty, you've got the defensive prowess. So that's going to always keep him in the lineup with Cano. There, there's literally nothing that you're getting there defensively. You're just hoping the contract works. It's similar. Probably the better comparison is what the Cardinals were doing early last season with Matt Carpenter, yeah. where you find out, is there yeah. anything here? And if the answer is no, he ends up being at the bottom of the bench or potentially even cut by midseason. If you're the Mets, I, I view the middle to back end of their lineup right now as just being better than what you have, honestly. Uh, like Corey Dickerson, for example, was batting fifth for you yesterday. Batting fifth for the uh, the Mets was Eduardo Resc- Escobar. I, I would take Escobar. But, but batting fifth for the Cardinals, I think, when you get down the stretch in the regular season, is probably going to be a Dylan Carlson. Dylan Carlson batting sixth for you right now. I would if you're If I told you as a hitter, not as a pure player, but as a hitter, you could have Carlson this year or Mark Canna. Which one do you guys think you would take on that? I think I might go Mark Canna just because See, I think I'd go Carlson. He's more of a veteran, and I think you know what you have in him. I think Carlson, look, we have an idea of what Dylan Carlson's going to be. I don't think you have a true idea of what he's going to be this year. He could be riding a little bit. He could continue to develop, take a couple steps forward, stay the same, or he could take a couple steps back. I know what Mark Canna is as a hitter. You know what's funny? Mark Canna's kind of a good comp for what Dylan Carlson could be. A better defender, Carlson should be, and he should steal more bases than Mark Canna has, but in his career... He's a 250-ish hitter with a 350 on on-base percentage. Hits for a decent amount of power. Mark Hanna's actually a pretty decent comp for the kind of player that I think Dylan Carlson could become. I would take Mark Hanna right now, though. And Jeff McNeil batting eighth in their lineup, if you compare him to like Sosa, DeYoung, Yachty, whoever you're putting down there, I'm just going to take Jeff McNeil over those guys. So I trust their rotation more than I trust the Cardinals rotation right now. I like the depth of their lineup a little bit better. The place where I think the Cardinals have the two biggest advantages, and these were not on full display yesterday, of course, are A, the bullpen, and B, the defense. They're better in those two areas than than the Mets, and that could ultimately end up being what propels them in the playoffs. I think those two things play very, very well in the playoffs, but I believe in this Mets team. I think this this year is different. I know that we always wait for it to fall apart for New York. Man, they are off to a great start this year. And you mentioned Alex say it, it all kind of depends on the DeGrom health. He hasn't even really done anything for him so far. So I think this Mets team is legit. And if the Cardinals are able to, for example, battle back in this series and get two out of three, I think that would be a hell of a sign for this Cardinals team. Man, mark me down for not expecting BK to become a Mets fan today. Oh, come on. <laughs> Coming up with uh, Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. 15 minutes, we'll get into some NFL quick hitters. It is officially two days away from the NFL draft. And, oh, buddy, it sure sounds like the NFL teams hate this draft. We'll tell you why. Coming up in 15 minutes, Danny Mack is next. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. Very happy to go out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line to be joined by the Cardinals broadcaster for Bally Sports Midwest. He's Danny Mack joining us here on the show. Dan, how you doing today, man? 
I'm doing great. Good afternoon, fellas. Good to have you. Hey, that game was awesome. Uh, that felt like a playoff game last night. And I know the result didn't go the Cardinals way, but uh, what was that like for you to be able to be at part of the atmosphere once again with a full crowd out there at Bush Stadium watching what felt like a playoff game? It did feel like a playoff game, BK, and it's April 26th, and you don't get that very often. And I do think that Throughout the season, regular season, you you have those games that move like that and pitchers are on and you have the competition that's uh, amped up a little bit because both teams are off to good starts and probably two of the best teams in the National League. And then the the sidebar is a future Hall of Famer and Max Scherzer, and he was just awesome last night. And he's a hometown kid. And then Miles Michaelis, they're going pitch by pitch, inning by inning with each other, and it was going to be – and I said this on the game. I said it's going to be one mistake that maybe cost one or the other team. You know, it's it's that tight of a game. And it did have that feel of a playoff game because of everything I just mentioned. And the Cardinals made a couple of mistakes in that ninth inning, and it cost them the game. But uh, in terms of just if you're a baseball fan, whether you're a Cardinal fan or a Mets fan, that is great baseball. And I, I said that a bunch last night. This is a great Major League Baseball game. And it was last night. That was fun. Dan, what have you made from Miles Michaelis' starts this season? In his last threes, 18 and two-thirds innings, and he's only given up one run. Are we seeing Miles Michaelis' 2018 version again? I think so, and the reason why is health. And if you watched his first start, and I was looking at some of the, the film from his Pittsburgh start, it looked like a guy to me that maybe wasn't quite ready to break north and go from spring training to regular season, uh, cool afternoon, maybe lack of a grip on a ball. But the one thing I did notice is that he, he was cutting himself off. And what that means is he, he just wasn't finishing his pitches. You could see he would leave some stuff up. And the last three starts, he's bearing that breaking ball down and into a lefty. He's got good velocity. He's locating in all four quadrants of the strike zone when he wants to with just about any pitch. And uh, I talked to him the other day on the road trip, and I said, you know, what do you think this is is like for you? What's what's going on? He said, I'm I'm finally healthy. You know, when I throw a pitch, it feels like it's supposed to feel coming out of my arm. And if I do have soreness, it's soreness. It's not being hurt. And there's a difference between the two. And so as long as he can stay healthy, I would imagine that he'll have a pretty solid year for the Cardinals. We're talking to Danny Mack here on 101 ESPN Cardinals broadcaster for Bally Sports Midwest. Dan, what have you seen from the Cardinals shortstop position so far this year? Well, where would you like me to go? <laughs> okay, <laughs> let, me, let me ask this in a better way. Edmundo Sosa last night got an opportunity. That's a tough spot, man. You're going up against Max Scherzer, one of the best pitchers in baseball. But he ended up looking overmatched in most of his at-bats. And we've seen the struggles from Paul DeYoung so far this year. I, I think Paul DeYoung's expected to be back in the lineup today. Do you give him a little bit further uh, of a runway here? I think you have to. and I know that some fans don't want to hear that. I'll put it this way, BK. I think the runway has gotten shorter. Okay, I, I think there's a runway there for him to work himself out of it but I think the runway has gotten a lot shorter. And, and that's how I would put it. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I think if they see that there you know, could be favorable matchups for either one of these guys, then that guy gets the edge that night. Um, and you're right. It was a really tough spot for Sosa last night. Here's a guy that really hasn't played all that much, and timing does become an issue coming out of spring training, and then all of a sudden 
he didn't play for like seven or ten days, and they put him in the starting lineup, and he got a couple of knocks. Ollie even brought it up in a hitters meeting and, and, and singled out Sosa and said, hey, I want to give this guy credit. He was ready to hit. He was ready to go. We love the aggressive nature. You know, he, he kept himself sharp, knowing that he was going to start on the bench. Got a little run over the weekend in Cincinnati and then the Scherzer game. And he wasn't the only one that was overmatched. I'll tell you what, For Matt sure. was, you know, on last night. But the point is, when you haven't been playing a lot, and then all of a sudden you're asked to be, you know, you're, you're still trying to get your timing, and then all of a sudden you're asked to be a guy that goes head-to-head with Max Scherzer, you're asking a lot. But um, this is the big leagues, and as Tim McCarver would always say, it's the big leagues, man. <laughs> so it's the big leagues, and you got to figure it out. But to the original point of what you were talking about, I, I just think the runway maybe has gotten a little bit shorter for Paul. We'll see how it plays out. Dan, the one thing that I, I love about Ollie so far in the early portion of the season is his aggressiveness, whether it's the Paul DeYoung decision or I heard your comments about talking to him Sunday before that game where typically the manager goes with a getaway game and he said, no, these are the games that matter at the end of the season. We want to win. We're treating it like a playoff game. I love the aggressiveness of Ali Marmol. I do too. I, I like his direct nature too. And I, I think that we got a little taste of that last night, which is what I see behind the scenes. When I ask him questions, he's very uh, upfront, forthright, honest with me to the point direct. And when he was asked about what happened on that, that play at first base with uh, Gallegos, he said, Hey, he, he made a mistake. He, he's got to be at the bag. He, he broke late, cost us the game. He knows it. We know it. Everybody knows it. And and I think people appreciate the direct nature. I, I know that players just want honesty, good or bad. Hey, I'm, I'm not in the lineup because tell me why. Or you're not putting me in in this situation. Why? And Ali will say, well, here's what I was thinking. This, 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 and this. And you go, okay. And, and I, I think players do appreciate that. So as we grow along with Ali and learning more about him and his managerial style, um, I think people will uh, enjoy the direct nature which he addresses the media, and I think the players like that as well. And, uh, Alex, as you said, I, I do think he's going to be aggressive in making changes if he feels that changes need to be done. I was talking about that with BT before the game yesterday, Dan, down on the field, and so much of that job now is just communication, whether it be with the media, with his players, with the other departments within the team. It's all about communicating. Yeah. And he, so far, it's early on, but seems to be doing a pretty good job of that. Dan, I did want to ask you about one of the pieces of news that came out today for Major League Baseball. They're still going to cut down the rosters to 26 men starting on May 2nd, but they are changing a piece of this. Instead of it being a 13-man pitching staff that you are limited to, now you can have 14 pitchers on the staff how do you think this applies to the Cardinals as they're making their decisions over the next week or so especially with Jordan Hicks still trying to ramp himself up into a regular starters load yeah it's a good question and especially with Verhagen now not in the lineup or in the uh, uh, bullpen and having been somewhat stretched out that that was a guy that you could piggyback with him you know tonight would be a perfect example of that um, and I think you could you could lengthen Brooks a little bit. Um, and another guy that, that would come to mind, obviously, is Jake Woodford. So they're going to have a decision on that trio, uh, I would think. And, and to me, Palante, with what he has shown so far, and in particular what he did in Miami, um, that was really good. And he came in, that was the game that Miles started, 0-0, Alcantara on the other side, and he came in, I believe, in the sixth inning, 
and then gave you two scoreless innings. And then he was also showing that when he was behind in the count, he could throw his secondary pitches for strikes. That is a huge difference from the minor leagues to the major leagues. And those guys that are successful coming out of a bullpen can do that. Throw a pitch, uh, curveball, slider, change up, fastball at any point in the count. And when you're behind in the count. So I, I think he's really made a case for himself to stay. But to your point, and, I, and Hicks is going to stay in the rotation um, until he gets fully stretched out. It does complicate it a little bit for the Cardinals. Dan, what do you think the best-case scenario is for Jake Woodford? Do you think it's going down to Memphis and being a part of their rotation? Well, if he's not going to pitch, it is. And, we, you know, we've seen him one time since April 10th. And I, I think he's a valuable guy. Um, I don't think this is because of a lack of uh, productivity. Because if you looked at the 17-game winning streak last year, he turned the corner. There was something there, whether it's between the ears or he did something mechanical, but he was a different pitcher. He, he looked really good and like he belonged. Um, so if you're not going to use him, though, if, if there's not a spot, then he, he becomes your, your pseudo sixth starter, I would think, and you stretch him out and let him uh, start down in Memphis. And that may be the best thing that, that could happen for him at this point just because there hasn't been – a lot of opportunities that have presented itself to where they, they liked what they were. You know, a lot of times with a guy like that, you say, okay, we're going to get him in this game tonight, and then the game does not unfold like you thought. Or they felt more comfortable with a different matchup, or the game stayed tight, or it was a blowout, don't want to waste him because we have a guy tomorrow that we need uh, innings from out of the bullpen. All those things, and it just it was kind of a perfect storm at times because I talked to Ollie about it to where, there was times that they wanted to use them, but then that perfect storm hit and they just couldn't do it. So maybe the, the best thing for him would be to, to go down to the minor leagues, go back in the rotation and be stretched out. Dan, to stick in that bullpen for just another second, I, I did want to ask you, you've been around this team for a long time. You've seen a lot of bullpens over the years. When you look at just the way that this thing is constructed right now, and you know, we do our, our Cardinals bullpen circle of trust. I think we've got seven guys in there right now. It seems like everybody that comes out of the pen right now, you trust them to get the job done. Can you remember a time early in a season where you had this much trust in the guys that were coming out of the pen with this deep of a pen? Man, that's a good question. I don't think this time early in a season. And I say that, I mean, I remember seeing bullpens that were, really good in the in the mid 2000s early 2000s they had some good bullpens too and those were championship teams but it, it took a while for it to develop like for instance in 2004 i believe the club they wound up winning 100 plus games but they started 15 and 15 and what happened was the rotation never missed a turn in the rotation until the very very end of the season uh going into like maybe the the second or third week of september so it was a five man rotation never missed a spot and their bullpen was solid, had a great closer at the backhand and Izzy, and everything just kind of fed off of that to where when I'm looking at year by year, it's, in my opinion, very, very tough to say that that guy is a given coming out of the bullpen. Had a great year last year, but what's it going to be this year? Or the guy that had a poor year last year all of a sudden figures it out uh, and becomes a, a guy that you can lean on. So I don't remember this early feeling that comfortable about a bullpen. And I, I'm with you guys. I, I'm very, very uh, comfortable with that bullpen and, and feel that these guys will keep games close if you're behind or if you have a lead, they'll protect it more times than not. So it will be before it's all said and done for the course of a season. I would imagine one of the strengths of this team, and it already has been maybe the strength of the team, just how well their bullpen is pitched. 
It's wild because the only guys that have an ERA right now for coming out of the pen over three are Drew Verhagen and Aaron Brooks. And those guys are in kind of different roles in what we're talking about here. And then Giovanni Gallegos. And last night he, he should have lost zero runs if he just runs over to the base. It's, it's kind yeah. of crazy the way that it's constructed. Dan, we appreciate the time as always, man. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy the game tonight. And we'll talk with you again soon. Looking forward to it. Thanks, guys. Got it. That's Danny Mac joining us here on 101 ESPN Cardinals broadcaster. Follow him on Twitter at Danny Mac TV, and you can check out his work as well at scoopswithdannymac.com. In 15 minutes, we'll get into the BK and Ferrario rewind, but Alex, I want to get into some NFL quick hitters for you next, including why the NFL apparently hates this year's draft and why a lot of teams might be looking later on in the draft to trade for next year's picks. I'll tell you why coming up here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. Let's dive into some NFL quick hitters. Boys, the NFL hates this draft. Me too. Good. I'm not telling you that you should hate this draft, I but do. the NFL is clearly tell you, telling you just how much they dislike it. Mike Holy Silver is an NFL reporter, and he tweeted this yesterday. Quote, you will hear the usual pre-draft hype with an emphasis on the anything can happen thing. But the truth is, this is the least sexy NFL draft of most of our lifetimes, and the people doing the drafting know it end quote again that's from mike silver of the nfl network alex is this how you feel about the draft as well i mean we can try to fluff this thing up there's a bunch of tackles and defensive ends defensive linemen that are expected to go in the first round there's really no quarterbacks that you feel great about it's pretty unsexy in terms of the draft right well, there's one sexy piece of it, and it's the goat that will be selected somewhere the between... The foot five, 340-pound defensive tackle. That's who you yeah. think is sexy. Yeah, that's sexy. That's a goat. Did you see his 40 time? I did, yeah. No, I mean, it is a pretty boring draft, and I think all of it has to do with you have no big-time quarterbacks available. Your wide receivers, I mean, the wide receivers, I've heard people say, like, oh, they're good, but they're not, like, earth-shattering good. So, I mean, what you're talking about, defensive linemen and offensive linemen, unfortunately, there's just nothing really sexy about that. And none of these defensive linemen have the hype that Jadavian Clowney had going into a draft or a Miles Garrett had going into a draft. Yeah. So it, it's hard not to get excited about it. Yeah, I'm with you. This just, this just feels like a blah draft. There's no quarterback. Even though, look, the wide receivers are good, but there's nobody that really stands out. Like when There's no came Julio out of, Jones. Yeah, no Julio Jones. No uh, uh, Jamar Demo- Chase. Tavon Jamar Austin. Chase. Guys like not Tavon Austin, but uh, <laughs> in the defensive ends, look, they're good, but they're not like the earth-shattering ones. Like when Jadavion Clowney came out, Jadavion Clowney really built his image off that hit in that bowl game where he South takes Carolina. off, blew off the guy's head, essentially. Yeah, like, killed that guy. Yeah, so uh, it just doesn't feel that way. And then, look, I – Tackles are important. They're like the number one thing we've talked about. You know, you look at uh, it was the Rams. The Rams, sure, they went out and got their quarterback. What do they want? They wanted a left tackle. That's why they went and got Andrew Whitworth, a 36-year-old left tackle, when they had golf at the time to protect him because it was going to lead to success. So they're an important part of the game. They're not sexy. We're not on here Mondays Nobody, talking about, if man, you're a fan what of a block. The Panthers or the Giants or the Jets, and your team drafts an offensive tackle on the top ten, it very well could end up being the right move. None of you are excited about it if you're a fan of that team. None no. of you. 
You no. can think it's the right move. You do not get excited about Charles Cross or Trevor Pinning or Evan Neal. There's just no way that you're going to sell me on that. So, like yeah, Icky. Icky Aquanu. He yeah. might in, he's getting buzzed right now for number one. <laughs> hey, what? That a boy. Yeah. Apparently, there's a divide within the Jaguars that front is, office. Shocker. That is such a Jaguars move to take a, a an offensive guard slash tackle first overall. So their front office apparently wants Trevon Walker, the defensive end out of Georgia, and their head coach would like Doug Peterson would like them to take Iki Aquanu, the offensive tackle out of NC State. So that's that's the divide that currently exists within the Jaguars front office. Meanwhile, uh, the Panthers general manager is currently talking with the media. Alex, I want to pass along this quote to you. He says, there are a couple of quarterbacks that he would feel comfortable drafting with the sixth overall pick. Can I give you a tinfoil theory here? Yeah. No chance they're taking a quarterback. None. Why no is chance. that? Back up your tinfoil. Why would you say that two days before the draft if you're actually interested in the quarterbacks at number six overall? That's a good point. Because you're letting people know that you're excited to take a quarterback sixth overall. But then somebody, if if another team like from Detroit, Seattle, or Pittsburgh. Nobody in front of the Carolina Panthers is taking a quarterback. Totally agree. But those teams could trade up to number five with the Giants and steal their quarterback away from them. But he says that there's a couple of guys they're comfortable with. Yeah, they like uh, every quarterback in this games. class. Every mind quarterback games. they think's a franchise guy. Panthers aren't taking a quarterback. Certainly not at number six overall. If they take one, was, I bet it's after a trade. Was Matt back. Rule part of this press conference? <laughs> no, but he's not. He doesn't say, need how, to be involved. I was gonna say how how sad the press did he look because if he Matt did, Rule, he knows he wasn't getting a quarterback and he's gonna be back in college next year. They keep Matt Rule locked in a basement until the start of the regular season. So he doesn't make any mistakes. Have you guys seen the picture? There's that picture that's floating around from when Matt Rule was the head coach at Temple. And Kenny Pickett had committed to play for Matt Rule at Temple. Uh, Now the first round quarterback projection from Pittsburgh. And it looks like a different human. Matt Rule looks like he was 30 years younger when he was the head coach at Temple than what he looks like right now. It's at least 50 pounds and 30 years ago. I mean, it was only like seven years ago, but it, it has to be at least 50 pounds and 30 years. Poor guy. It, it's not great. Carolina him. will do that. Cam Newton and Sam Darnold will do that to you. I think he's a good coach, too. That's what sucks. Eh, I don't know. I do, too. I oh. thought I liked him at first. I'm not so uh, sure. BK anymore. also hates uh, what's the Cincinnati head coach. The greatest coach, John Madden, couldn't win with the Carolina Panthers. Yeah, he could. Maybe uh, not, but no, I, couldn't. I don't know if I trust him. He, he, he won hired, with the Raiders. He hired Ben McAdoo as his offensive coordinator. Not great, man. Uh, all hey, right. He's good. <laughs> Mike Tannenbaum. The former NFL general manager, he's now on Get Up, ESPN's morning show. He said earlier today, Alex, speaking of a sexy draft, Jamison Williams, quote, could be the next Tyreek Hill. Ayo. There we go. Can we just make it a blanket statement that we are no longer comparing NFL prospects along the defensive line to Von Miller? We are not comparing quarterbacks that are toolsy but have done nothing in college to Josh Allen. We're not going to compare any of the wide receivers moving forward to Julio Jones or Tyreek Hill. Just don't do it. It sets all of these guys up for failure. The chances are they're never going to reach that kind of ceiling. Tyreek Hill's one of the five best receivers in the league. He's got speed unlike anything we've seen in the league for, what, 20 years? The start and stop ability that he has. Josh Allen is one of one. I don't know if I'm ever going to see another quarterback as bad as Josh Allen was in college to become as good as he is in the NFL. 
And yet we're sitting here saying, ah, maybe Malik Willis could be the next Josh Allen. No, the chances are he's probably not going to be that guy. I hate these comparisons, man. It sets these guys up for failure. Reminds me of what happened with Dylan Carlson or when people talk about Albert Pujols in the same light with Jordan Walker. No, 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 no. Let this guy be himself. Chances are he's probably not going to be that. And now as I'm watching on ESPN, the Chiefs are going to take him. uh, Mock draft, apparently the Chiefs are trading up to like 13 to get Jamison Williams, who they compared to Tyreek Hill. Because of course... I was just going to say, T-Bone, sounds like BK's a little butthurt making all of these comps saying that because Tyreek Hill hurt him and Josh Allen hurt him. Like, someone's a little butthurt with all of these things. You know, I, I just think he doesn't enjoy fun because what's the fun in not not drawing comparisons? Yeah, I mean, you got to comp. Yeah, I'm going to draft a guy and he's just going to be himself. Oh, that's yeah. so boring. I want to comp. Yeah. I want to know who he's going to be know. like. Exactly. I want to know if this guy's going to turn out to be Tyreek Hill. I okay. don't want to, oh, well, Jamison Williams is going to be a great wide like, receiver. I remember, I believe, I'm not quite sure who said I think it was Kyle Glazer, comped Dylan Carlson to a potentially being an Andre Ethier type. It got me excited. I, and then BK's here. No, no, it's just Dylan Carlson. I don't like Andre <laughs> no, Ethier. I think Andre Come Ethier on. is a totally reasonable comparison. Lance Berkman. I do not think that Albert Pujols is a reasonable comparison for any right-handed hitter coming up right now. How do you know? Maybe Jordan Walker is the next big thing. Nobody thought Albert Pujols was going to be Albert Pujols. If we didn't shoot the stars with our comps, how would we ever have gotten like a Juan Soto correct? Try and live a little longer in your life, BK. Optimism, buddy. Yeah, you know what happens here? It's when you start comping like starting pitchers to the next Clayton Kershaw. They get hurt and they never end up helping you. Well, then you know what? I'll just say I was wrong. Don't break your heart, man. Yeah, well, then we just say, well, you know what? We made the comp too soon. (laughs) With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. We'll hit the BK and Ferrario Rewind next. (laughs) We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Kylie, if you missed anything from today's show, be sure to check it out on the podcast page. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers at 101ESPN.com and the free 101ESPN app. Alex, let's revisit the Miles Michaelis conversation from earlier today. Tanner, before the season, said in his T-Bone 3, hey, you know what? Miles Michaelis, bold prediction, sub 3-5 ERA, throws at least 170 innings, finishes at the top of the uh, rotation when it comes to wins. I'm not sure on the wins. I do think that the... ERA though in the innings is probably going to be there and the reason why is because of what we've seen in his last three starts Miles Michaelis more than 18 innings pitched in those three starts has allowed just one earned run over his last three he completely changes the ceiling for this rotation Alex if he starts pitching the way that he has in his last few starts he's mixing it up he's throwing a little bit of everything he's going up and down in terms of the velocity his curveball he threw one last night that was like 65 miles per hour he's all over the place right now with what he's throwing when he's throwing it and at what speed he's throwing it batters are off balance they look completely uncomfortable against him even the underlying numbers are really good he's not walking anybody's throwing strikes again This looks like the pitcher we saw in 2018, 2019. He looks healthy again. Yeah, and I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, if you're getting a guy who is going to be viewed as an all-star for the way he's been pitching, at least for the first chunk of the season, I mean, it makes you a dangerous team. And, you know, here's the one thing that we really haven't talked much about, and rightfully so, because it's only April 26th. 
But does Miles Michaelis pitching this way change the Cardinals' view of the trade deadline? Because maybe they don't have to sit here and worry about adding to your starting pitching depth. You can actually focus on a designated hitter if you feel like that that position is weak or a shortstop if you feel like that position is weak. I mean, if Miles Michaelis is pitching this way, you have a heck of a one through three, one through four, if Jack Flaherty's available for you. And as we all know, in a playoff series, you're using usually four guys in a starting rotation uh, in the revolving door, if we can go back to that for where we started. So I, I think Miles Michaelis changes some things. If if they're fully healthy, I, I agree with you. Obviously, that there's so much left of the season. Somebody's going to get hurt at some point. And the hope is just that it's not season-ending. Not it's with not, that attitude. It's not any kind of like <laughs> massive injury. But yeah, if everybody stays healthy and this is the Miles Michaelis that you get long-term, it totally changes the conversation about the rotation. The question coming in was, okay, I think I know what I'm going to get from Adam Wainwright. I feel pretty good about what I'm going to get about Steven Matz. But what after that? We didn't know on Dakota Hudson with all of the injuries that he's coming back from the Tommy John surgery. Is he going to be able to get that command back? Really? I haven't seen that yet, but you're hoping. And then with Jordan Hicks being thrust into that fifth spot in the rotation, it was impossible to know exactly what he was going to be able to give you. And Michaelis was the real X factor. He was the guy that, at, at his best, we saw it. it. It can be one of the better pitchers in the National League, especially with this defense behind him. But is he going to be able to be that guy again, or is that just gone? Is that a figment of our imagination at this point, and we're just holding on to hope that he can become it again? What we've seen in his last three starts is that that's real. It, it is something that is still attainable for him. And I think what's most what's most impressive to me, Alex, is the the conviction that he has on his pitches. Tanner, you were there last night as we were talking to Miles Michaelis postgame, both on and off camera. He just sounds like a different guy right now. Sounds confident. He sounds super confident. And he's always kind of been that, but there the vibe around him right now seems like Miles Michaelis is back. And that is a huge deal, to your point, for this team. Yeah, and if Miles Michaelis is back, I, I just I think that adds confidence into every aspect of the pitching for the Cardinals because Miles Michaelis being back adds confidence to guys like Steven Matz, Dakota Hudson, Jordan Hicks, Adam Wainwright that feel like that they don't have to carry a bigger load, and it adds confidence to your bullpen knowing that every time Miles Michaelis is on the mound, you're not going to have to be used in the fifth inning. Let's finish it off, off the show today the way we only can. From the three one four, you've got to be kidding me if you think the Cardinals don't need to add pitching just because Michaelis is pitching well. That is ridiculous. You need to get off of the radio. All right, I'll go. All right, well, I'll be back until seven thirty tonight. I honestly don't understand that assessment. They have arguably the best bullpen in baseball right now, and your rotation looks pretty darn good. And Miles Michaelis has been so far. Based on the numbers, one of the best starting pitchers in the league. Wayno's been pretty good. Hudson, although I still have my questions about the command, has been pretty solid. And Jordan Hicks has been everything you could have asked for. That, that's a pretty good start to the season from your pitching staff. I would say so far your bigger issue is actually the offense, not the pitching. But, you know, that's just me. Get off the radio, BK. For Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. Fastlane coming up next. It's just dynamic stuff. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.